Hey everyone, welcome to MCU Fan Show episode 276. My name is Sean Gerber. In a moment, I'll be joined by Paul Herman for our spoiler review of Ant-Man and the Wasp Quantum Mania, directed by Peyton Reed, written by Jeff Loveness, and produced by Kevin Feige and Steven Broussard. Before our spoiler review begins, want to let you know about Fan Show Plus. That is where you can hear us talking about additional MCU topics exclusively for premium subscribers at patreon.com slash Sean Gerber or on Apple Podcasts if you search for the MCU Fan Show channel or Fan Show Plus, you can find it there and subscribe. Coming up on Fan Show Plus, we will be talking about the box office and critical and audience reception for Ant-Man and the Wasp Quantumania. We will also be talking about the new release date for the Marvels moving from July 28th of this year to November 10th of this year. And you can find that episode and more. And again, that's at patreon.com slash Sean Gerber or on Apple Podcasts on the MCU Fan Show channel or just by searching Fan Show Plus. Also, please remember to keep up with us in those places you can. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at MCU Fan Show. And if you're enjoying the show, we would greatly appreciate a rating and review from you on Apple Podcasts. Thank you so much to everyone who has already taken the time to share their thoughts. It really does make a difference. And now, on with our review. I should have said, and now a new dynasty begins, but I didn't. So I am upset with myself. How are you, Paul? Well, uh, I, I'm doing very well. Uh, I will say that I've told you before this, and I'm going to say it right now here so everyone can know before they go into this review, this will be one of the more unique reviews, I think, of maybe MCU fan show history. I, it might it might go down. Not as most controversial, not something that me and you're going to yell at each other about. But this we'll will see. Be Who a, knows? But. No, I don't, I don't think so. <laughs> no, but I don't think so I, either. I, no, no, but I will say it will be unique in how we review this a little bit and it's how just the general feeling of things kind of going forward, I think are just, is kind of unique to compare to what we've had before. I think so. This is not a doctor for me anyway, this is not a doctor strange yeah. in the multiverse of madness situation. It's definitely not going to be a fan four stick situation from 2015, but it's not that I have a complicated relationship with this movie, because if you saw my reaction tweet on MCU fan show, it was very positive because I do still overall really like and I really enjoyed this movie at the same time am I surprised by the critical reception and just totally mystified as to how this happened no not really I'm also not really surprised by the audience reception with the B cinema score although I know the audience score on Rotten Tomatoes is I mean what like 84% liked it or something like that as of this recording for as much as that's worth which I'm not really sure but anyway, the audience reception, not quite what we're used to seeing, although a little bit more in line with what we're becoming used to seeing from MCU movies, but that's for an episode of Fan Show Plus. This, uh, this episode is all about our actual thoughts on this movie, but the reason why I wasn't surprised to see not everyone agreeing with me in terms of liking this movie or loving this movie, whatever the case may be, is that it really does have some flaws, and it comes, I mean, all these movies have flaws, but this one has flaws that could be big enough to where I could see how this, or maybe things that I didn't necessarily spot, could have derailed the experience for someone watching the film, and the positives that I really liked about it 
maybe weren't as positive for them or not positive enough to make up for some of the faults that are there in this movie. So I totally understand where someone may be coming from if they didn't like the movie, even though I did, uh, which is fine. It's this shocking thing where we can hold space in our heads for all of us to have different opinions on movies. It's weird. I know Twitter doesn't allow it, but I feel like it's just something that we can carry forward on this podcast. That's the beauty of podcasting is we can, as you all know, ramble on for as long as we want to have a nuanced opinion uh, and analysis of these things. And, and that means the good and the bad. But before we get into anything specific, just our overall general thoughts on this movie, Paul, uh, for me, again, I liked it. I, I'm pretty close to loving it. There are certainly things uh, in this movie that I absolutely loved and things that have me very excited about what I just saw, things that have me very excited about what we hope slash expect, whatever, to see in the not-so-distant future in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. So there's a lot of really great stuff in this. And then also some things that felt to me, as we were just talking about off-air before the show, not talking about football for once, but talking briefly <laughs> before the show, not so much things that are bad per se, but maybe incomplete is where some of the, is the grade I give to some of the aspects to, uh, to in this movie that I thought this could have been better had it been fleshed out a little bit more, especially when we're talking about the arc of our main character, Scott Lang slash Ant-Man, and then also the other title character, the Wasp, which if we count the original Wasp as Janet Van Dyne, then yes, the Wasp justified her place in the title of this movie. In terms of the current Wasp with uh, Hope Van Dyne, I'd say shortchanged again uh, in another movie that has her superhero name in the title. And here I go getting specific when I said I wasn't going to. So overall, I really like this movie. We're going to get into some stuff that I totally loved in Quantumania that I was so excited about and I was just having an absolute blast with while watching this movie. But you can also prepare yourselves. If you loved everything about Ant-Man and the Wasp Quantumania, you may hear some things you don't necessarily like because there will be some flaws that we will have to dig into because there are definitely some areas where this movie could have been better. And, and I do think that some small changes here or there, no size puns intended unless we express otherwise, uh, I would say... Some small things here that could have made this a much, much better movie across the board. What do you think, Paul? You know, I, I, it's very not it's not rare, but we we usually don't line up a, a lot, a lot. Like we're almost like neck and neck, right? Like it feels like, and that's good, right? Yeah. I, even when we to, both really love it, we love it for very different sets of reasons. Yeah, you and not not all the time, but it, it's just it's it's again, almost it's like we're two different people. It's almost, and and that does lead to I think why you know we do well together because we're not the same and we like things for different reasons, et cetera, et cetera. And if we just were just echoes of each other, it'd be boring to be honest. So let's be real. Um, and the thing is, I think we're way more in line with this movie than I think than we have in a while. Besides maybe like the ones that are obvious, like we both love What Kind of Forever, we both love No Way Home. Uh, we're way off on, you know, obviously Multiverse of Madness and Thor, Lord, Love and Thunder. Eternals, we're a little more closer on. You might like it a little more than I did, but re regardless, we're probably pretty much almost in line 
link for link here, to be honest. Um, I, you kind of told me a little bit that like you liked it. There were some definitely were flaws and, and I, all the reactions I was seeing, I was very curious what these flaws were, you know, cause I don't, you know, you don't, I don't ask for you to tell me, I don't want to know. I want to come into this and, and enjoy the film for what it is. And when I saw the movie with Chris, our, our good friend, Chris Clow, you know, I, I immediately saw the problems and the crazy thing is, is it didn't necessarily ruin the movie for me either, if that makes any sense to anyone out there. And I think the problem is that some, especially nowadays with, with social media, I mean, and again, this is just me throwing this out there. I mean, it's full of SH, I don't know, but it feels like with, with platforms like social media that we have, it's more like, it feels like if you don't like everything about a movie, you have to pick a side. Oh no. And then everything the, is the greatest thing you've ever seen or the worst thing you've ever seen. It, that yeah, is right, right. That's social media. And here's the problem too. You can't acknowledge like it's or people have a hard time acknowledging the fault of a movie they love and accepting them and, and being like, yeah, I totally get that. Like that's not as good as like, or I like it, but I, pre- your, your self-awareness, and this is a ba- bigger podcast than what we're, uh, what I'm getting into, but the self-awareness of being and knowing like, oh yeah, I can understand why people wouldn't like this for whatever reason, right? You can understand and identify with that. The problem is with, I think, Ant-Man and the Wasp, Quantumania, is that people want it to be, we talked about it before the show, they want it to be A-plus level you know, content. And I don't think it's A-plus level, but this is because it's like, B plus level in my, this is my, you know, or I have a better grading system. I'll get that in a second, but either way, it's not to the, quite the level of that. Does that make it like bad and the worst thing ever? And then Marvel's on a decline. That's a debate. But to be honest, I don't necessarily think completely. And this movie is not that bad. Like, it's just not like, it's just not like you said, it's incomplete in a lot of ways. And we'll dive into the specific reasons why I don't love it, love it, love it. But I really enjoy this movie at the same time. Like I haven't, I told you before the show as well, I wasn't able to watch this movie for the second time. I really wanted to. Just life got nuts this weekend. And, but I want to go see it again before the theater. And I can tell you right now, like that's a, for those who know me, no, my time is very valuable. And that, that should show, that does show something of this movie has credibility on some level with me that I want to see it again on a, on a nice t- uh, big screen, IMAX screen. So I, I enjoy this movie. Obviously, you know, the, there's the, the, the major reason is okay. Like, that's the reason why this movie whole works, in my opinion. And I think everyone's going to agree with that, hands down. And we'll dive into that, obviously, yeah, in a second. I've only seen one review that criticized Jonathan Major's performance as Kang. And I... Tar and feather, man. I, no, it's fine. I get yeah. it. It's fine. Hey, yeah. we, don't, we don't all have to like the same things, even things I that know. are just kind of objectively great. But, um, yeah, I, I think it is a whole other podcast. But we, we did have that whole other podcast or we address some of this stuff, go back and listen to episode 274. Although I know our faithful listeners here have already heard it, but uh, listen to it again, I guess when we talked about look, the MCU is operating in a different space right now uh, than it was back in uh, the first three phases, especially the first two phases, even though that's kind of where we're at right now in the multiverse saga is we are in phases one and two now just starting phase two of this saga So you kind of go back to where we were in phases one and two of the Infinity Saga, and it's just so different. I mean, I'm sorry, like there's not really much of an argument that I can entertain or or at least agree with that this movie is worse than Thor The Dark World. I think that 
Marvel movies used to get a pass where, you know, a good time was good enough with these movies. And I think that's not necessarily the space that Marvel is in. And by the way, I think it's totally fine for the audience to hold these movies to a higher standard because they've been shown a higher standard. That's where you can become a victim of your own success is that the audience knows how great these movies can be when they really are great. And so when they get something a little bit less than that, some people will say, fall in the, yeah, but it's still good enough camp, depending on how they feel about a given movie. Other people may say, no, this one just didn't pass muster for me. And and also, some people might ask, like, well, how can you point out these flaws and you still like the movie? It's simple. You can realize that there's flaws in a movie, but they didn't get in the way, or the things that you really loved about the movie were good enough to overcome the things that you know or felt were not so great about the movie. And that is the nuance of... Uh, at least movie reviewing that you get to have in podcast form. So why don't we stop talking about how we review things and let's go ahead and review this movie and get into the the specifics here. And let's, I guess we could start very quickly with the, the prologue that we get. So we see Janet surviving in the quantum realm and then something comes into the quantum realm. There's a crash landing she is attacked by a couple of monsters, and she is ultimately saved by, uh, she does some saving, but then is ultimately saved by this stranger who wonders, what is this place? We know who that is. It's Kang, but we're not going to see him or get a lot more information on him for quite a while in this movie. I don't have a lot to say uh, about the prologue, Paul. It was a good opening. I like that Already in the span of what two or three minutes, Michelle Pfeiffer already has a better role in this movie than she had in the previous Ant Man and the Wasp movie. And that points me to, which we'll get into much more detail as we go along, in that it is one of the, the. This starts on two of the big wins for this movie Jonathan Majors as Kang, but also Michelle Pfeiffer as Janet Van Dyne the original Wasp, uh, both of those performances, which we will get into as we get into more meaningful scenes with these characters, uh, were really great. And and I did like this, uh, I did like this opener, but obviously we'll have much more detail to talk about as we go on. But I like this prologue. Yeah, this prologue was, I mean, obviously awesome because it's got Kang in it. And, and that's going to be a broken record for me. And this is talking about how much I love Kang. So just spoiler ahead, you know. But yeah, this was a cool um, insight because, you know, again, I stayed away from spoilers. I'm assuming most of us did. And we have no idea where exactly, you know, Kang comes in and, and we didn't know when we were going to get it. I think it was a smart move to put it as a prologue to go back to, you know, focus on Janet a little bit because obviously she's like the key of all this, right? As far as exposition and, and going through everything. And I think that was a, uh, a nice way of getting us kind of up to speed without having to go backwards. I'll be honest, I almost, this is not necessarily necessarily a criticism. I would almost prefer, Sean, if they would have went a little farther after the fact when she first meets him, like actually have them show the relationship and then see him kind of turn a little bit on her and be like, oh, or at least get a little more hint of, the, of their relationship of, of, the, of this guy, you know, who shows up and yeah. also they're helping each other out. I would have liked that a little more further out than what we got. I'm not saying it's what we got was bad at that point, but I think they should have went a little further, in my opinion. That's fair. I mean, it does create a little bit of a pacing issue that I picked up on, at least for me anyway, in, in the movie, which was, yeah, Kang is introduced, sort of, um, at least visually, but then, yeah, we don't get 
much Kang for quite a long time in the movie. And I know the purpose of that is they want the approach they took was to be very, very ominous. So like over the next 45 minutes or so of the movie, 45 minutes to an hour, it's just this guy. We're not even necessarily saying the name Kang yet. We're just saying we're referring to him as he and, and whatever else, almost like a he who remains. Uh, we're talking about this guy. And so it's really selling the idea that there is this person here who is really, really powerful and intimidating and a conqueror and, and all of these things. So I do understand that approach, that before you really give the audience too much of a glimpse at Kang, you want to build up the idea of this character in the audience's mind. So I understand that being the choice, and I'm I'm fine with it. Uh, moving forward in the movie, so now we're catching up in the present day of Scott Lang's life as he's looking out for the little guy. Of course, his book, which is available for sale. I'm, I have it on pre-order. I don't know if the book's really going to be worth anything. Um, if it's even going to be well-written, we'll find out. But uh, I don't think the book comes out for several more months. But So we find out what's going on with Scott. He's getting taking pictures with dogs, grabbing lunch with Jimmy Woo, which great cameo for Randall Park. I got a, a kick out of that. Also, the return of Dale, Greg Turkington, as the manager at Baskin-Robbins, who has named Scott Lang Employee of the Century, uh, kind of pulling a Scott Lang with Captain America in Civil War, shaking his hand too long. And then we see uh, Scott, and, Scott and Hope hanging out, having date nights together, and we land on a book reading. This book reading scene I thought was really, really funny. Uh, I got a big kick out of this scene. The whole wink with the kid and how corny Scott was, how corny his book is, was fantastic. The whole thing about would he ever answer if the, if the Avengers called him again? Absolutely. He'd never turn his back on them. But right now, his life is all about being a dad. But he wants all the kids to know out there to look out for the little guy and remember that there's always room to grow. So this whole sequence I thought was really funny. And it really plays into Scott Lang just trying to enjoy his life after an insane, crazy period of his life, uh, after saving the world and being able to bask in the glow of that a little bit. The scene in the coffee shop, too, when they're like, your money's no good here. And he's like, we're still talking about that, which this is the kind of stuff that Paul Rudd is just so perfect for. I mean, he's yeah, perfect he's for everything, Scott Lang. But I, I liked this whole sequence. I thought it was a a nice, fun catching up to here's where we're at with Scott Lang. So th this whole part, before we get into Cassie being in jail, I was having a good time with. Yeah, I, I definitely feel that this was more in line with the Scott Lang we kind of knew from the previous films. And it, it was nice. It was a nice, you know, intro reintroduction to everything. Um, yeah, I, I liked all this. It was all funny, like really funny stuff. Um yeah, I mean, it's, it's charming. I mean, Paul Rudd is one of the most charming you know, actors out there. Whenever he's in a role, you just you always going to like his character it's re regardless. And his Scott Lang is, is awesome. I love Scott Lang. Uh, so which I'm very I'm, I can't wait to talk further about later on in this in this movie review. I'll just say that. Uh, yep. Put a little put a pin a pin in this one for me. Um, but that being said. Yes, th this is the stuff why we like Paul Rudd as Scott Lang is all on display here. Yeah, it's just super funny and fun and charming. Everything about that works. Just kind of a bummer that Spider-Man gets free coffee, but Ant-Man or Bug-Man, as we find out, doesn't. Gets charged 12 bucks, as we'll find out later on in the movie. But Scott gets a message from San Francisco County Jail. Cassie has been arrested. She was part of a peaceful protest as a homeless encampment was being evacuated in a park. Uh, these are people who lost their homes in the blip. Um, so Scott picks Cassie up from jail. Hope is there as well. 
And so we get into this message about the movie very early on that Scott is not even kind of ignoring his own behavior in the past and who he used to be and what he used to stand up for. Because as he wrote in his book, these days, it's all about being the only job he wants is to be a dad, to be Cassie's dad. And so all he really cares about is her safety and her well-being and doing what he feels he needs to do in order to protect her. That's kind of what Scott's all about in this movie, which we will talk about uh, again. Not that that's like a bad thing for a parent to care to prioritize the safety of their child. That's that's a good thing, way it's supposed to go. Uh, but anyway, so, and we also see this is Cassie moving into hero mode, superhero mode. She just wants to help people. When she sees that there is a struggle, something bad that's happening, she wants to try and fix it to help those that she can. So we already see Cassie going down that path, which again is a very good thing, but it puts her in situations that could put her in danger. So obviously Scott, as the parent, not necessarily going to be the big fan of that. I like that Hope is kind of on Cassie's side in this stuff of like, you're basically just telling her what to do. Um, But also... Hope has been here, right? Hope was also kind of held mm-hmm. back by a dad who didn't want her to move forward because that dad didn't want to lose his daughter. Go back and see the very first Ant-Man movie where that's kind of Hope and Hank's whole dynamic until we get to the end of that movie and it's about damn time and Hope gets to have a suit. So I like these kind of callbacks, not that they you know, throw it over there, but I'm here to, <laughs> to go ahead. We're here to go ahead and, and call these things back and show how this tracks and, and where we're at for the journeys of the uh, of these characters. And so all of that stuff uh, I thought was was good. I liked that Cassie shrunk the cop car. That was a really funny bit. And then we get to the family meeting, and that's where Scott kind of gets called out, right? That he, what Cassie got arrested for doing, not all that different for what Scott went to jail for doing for those years after what he did with Vistacorp. Again, go back to editor's note, go back to the first Ant-Man film from 2015. <laughs> but... I also really like, though, the stuff like how they give him shit for what his complacency in, in his life at that point, where he even talks about, I saved the world. And everyone's like, you did? And Janet's got one of the lines of the movie, which says, you should write a book about that. That cracked me up. I absolutely loved it. Um, and then we find out that uh, Cassie not only is participating in peaceful protests, that and not just having kind of a more... Not that she intends to be a heroic, but what tends to end up being a heroic point of view and wanting to help people, it really is going further down that superhero path. She has a suit. Um, This wasn't even her first time in jail. Uh, So Cassie is definitely ready to go out and help regardless of what that may, you know, regardless of her safety or freedom for being put in jail, whatever the case may be. So I like that we're getting all of this information about Cassie. I think that where we're missing something here is to just add a little more weight to this for Scott. Cause I, I think so much of this is just very happy go lucky. And, and yes, there's a lot of funny stuff that you got to throw in there. As I said, everybody giving him a hard time about just reminding everybody about that time. He saved the world in Avengers Endgame, left out the assist from the rat, but everything that Scott's talking about um, all of that works and him listening to his own book, by the way, is priceless. And like, I love the whole, like, am I the Hulk's baby? That was fantastic. Uh, as he's recapping time travel, the absolute win from Avengers Endgame, all of that stuff like works and it's fine. But I think this is where sometimes the Ant-Man movies do themselves a little bit of a disservice, especially in this movie where it does get heavier. 
I think in this first act, especially, they could have used a bit more weight here for Scott because the movie does, and this will be a recurring theme as I discuss flaws in this movie. Yep, yep. It presents this perspective from Scott as an issue. It's not a a character flaw in the sense that it's not a bad thing for a parent to prioritize the safety of their child. Again, that's a perfectly natural, justifiable, valid thing for a parent to feel, obviously. Goes without saying, but I said it anyway. So the what they're pointing out, though, and what Cassie is pointing out is it can't just be about that. Like you, There's also the bigger world that you want to try and address. And Scott, his perspective on this is, hey, I already did that. I saved the world. Now I just want to be a dad. And I think as understandable as that is in a general idea, as a general concept, I think it would have been better to make it more specific to the character and outline the stakes more specifically for Scott Lang. So rather than rely on everybody's general idea of what it means to be a parent and to love your child and want to protect them, let's also go back through what Scott has lost. He has lost years with his child, years that he spent in prison because of what he did with Vistacorp. But then also during the blip, he has missed so much of Cassie's life. And I think it's okay to have Scott acknowledge that he's sad about that, that that's something that he wants, that he knows he can't necessarily change. And he's not necessarily intending to do that. But I've already spent that time. I have given, I have made the sacrifices. I sacrificed my freedom to rebel against Vistacorp and what they were doing. And then I lost all of that time and risked my life to save the world with the Avengers. I did all of those things. I've already proven my willingness to help others. Now I just want to spend time with my daughter because I've already lost so much. And I think it's okay to acknowledge that Scott's just really sad about that and wanting to hold on to, um, wanting to hold on to Cassie now because of how much time that he's lost with her. I think this movie needs more of that to really solidify the emotional stakes for Scott because, as I said, it's just relying on the general idea of parents loving and protecting their children, not getting into, hey, this situation has been really difficult for Scott and that's why he's reacting this way. He knows it's a good thing to look out for other people. He knows it's a good thing to be an Avenger and save the world and all of those things, but also he did that at the expense of losing time with his daughter. And now he just wants to get some of the time that he still just doesn't want to lose any more time right now. And it's fine to acknowledge that Scott's not super happy about that. This is where I think the movie and you, you kind of stole my thunder a little bit, but no, no, but like the thing is there's going to be a reoccurring theme as we break this movie down of the main problems of this movie. And I think it starts kind of right here. Like what you're saying, Sean, I think part of it also is there's just no chemistry. It feels like in this scene. Now I know that's not the case in general, because for the most part, I think the actors uh, all working together were worked together, worked together just fine for the most part in the previous films, for the most part, that being said, this might be Evangeline Lilly's like worst, performance and maybe it's because she just has nothing she's just kind of in like her own she's a she's a she's a uh her name i, I can't knock her because this character is once again just completely underwritten in these movies well and maybe that's what i mean too and i and, and i just say like just the character the the performance everything just does not work in this movie in my opinion and it feel it just it, she kind of feels like an afterthought 
in her own film. And that's, and I'm not just blaming her on this whole uh, situation either. Like it's Paul Rudd seems stiff. Like people seem stiff a lot when they're doing these kinds of scenes for me. And that's kind of a problem. And we talked about before Paul Rudd, you know, starts off like classic Scott Lang and then it jumps into a Scott Lang we're not familiar with. And it's, you know, it's him being really concerned about Cassie and he's, and he has to be serious. He it just seems stiff. And part of it, and we talked a little before the show, but I, I kind of blamed Jeff Loveless a little bit. And, you know, I don't know if it's a combination of everybody or whatever, but either way, the result for me, it just feels like there's a lot of things like this in this, in this movie. They're just stiff and they don't feel like just, I, they don't feel well, um, well, um, well, pace, I don't know. I can't really explain it, but it just doesn't feel right. It just feels stiff and clunky and and just kind of a, a, a means to push the things forward fast. And it just kind of, I don't know. I, I have a, I, this is a problem I have with a lot of parts of the movie in the in the middle, like at this in the, the first act and the second act in some parts that really kind of drag things down. And I think this is where people like don't like the movie because you've kind of sacrificed, I think, the strengths of some of the people in that, in the scene that are the main characters. So like mm -hmm. Paul Rudd's whole, you know, his whole thing is he's kind of the go lucky. Like I'm going to make everything positive. I'm going to work this out. And it's, it, he all of a sudden you, you rework that to, well, I'm really worried about all the time and I don't want to be, a, yeah. you know, he, I don't want to well, be a hero. Which, I'll yeah, give you a fine. key. I'll give you a key difference because the first Ant-Man movie, this is not a new thing. Scott being sad that he's lost time with Cassie and wanting to spend more time with her. This, this is what I like about the movie in the sense that, it is true to the emotional core of Scott sure. Lang as he loves his daughter and wants to be there for her and, and all of those things because he's a parent. Obviously, that's what he should want. But go back to the first movie, and he is sad when he doesn't get to spend time with Cassie. And when his ex-wife tells him about the back pay of child support and everything else that he owes before he can see her, we get a scene that shows him doing the math yeah. and realizing how long it's going to be just based on if he does it straight up and doesn't get a you know key job from a nice job offer from Hank Pym a few minutes later in the movie, but we see the struggle and we see him down about it. And so that is where we connect with the character. We get a chance to really empathize with him because we see that it's hurting him. We see that it's bothering him. They just breeze over that in this movie. And it's yeah. just all, it's just surface level. It's just very, and that's what I'm saying about how small, when I say like a small tweak that can do a lot, how long is that scene, Paul, where he does the math of how long it's going to take to see Cassie? Is that like 20 seconds, maybe, yeah. in the first movie? But how effective is it? Like it really yeah. illustrates for you as an audience member. It literally does the math for you as an audience member to show mm -hmm. the stakes for him and what he really cares about. And we don't really get that type of moment in this first act of the movie. And I think it desperately needs it because everything is just way too happy-go-lucky to start. And I think that that's kind of where it, the problems start with the movie. And I think people just, there's there's no, like you said, there's no emotional connection with the characters. You're just supposed to kind of, like again, you kind of talked about it again before the show. We, we had a great conversation before, before the show, obviously. But you, we talked about how like, you have to kind of put that on yourself for Paul Rudd's character, Scott Lang, because we've seen the previous films. Right. And you're, you're kind of taking that for granted in the scene. You're like, oh, we've seen the movies. We don't, we don't need to call back to it. But I think more, and I, I don't want to jump too far ahead either, but I think the problem is 
there's too many characters. Try, you're trying to juggle too many different like, ideas. When I think the focus should have just been honestly on Ant Man and Cassie, and or Stinger, Stature, whatever you want to call it. And I think that to me is the problem because you you hit the nail on the head. You 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 can't assume everyone's going to remember and 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 call back and put that on themselves. It's the That's Stanley. It's lot. the Stanley principle. Every comic is someone's first. Exactly. And same thing for an MCU movie. So. Yes, as somebody who watches all of these movies a bunch of times, I remember that scene of Scott Lang doing the math in the first movie. I remember the heartbreak slash relief on Scott Lang's face when he saw Cassie in Avengers Endgame. And I know Avengers Endgame was a massively popular movie. And so, yes, most of the people sitting down to watch Ant-Man and the Wasp Quantumania have seen Endgame. It doesn't necessarily mean they remember that scene as vividly as as maybe those of us who watch the movie a bunch of times do. And it just it doesn't matter what people remember right. when you can take a few seconds and just put it in the right context for them here and now in the movie that they're currently watching. It doesn't take that much. It just takes a honestly just the, the thoughtfulness to do it in the first place. Yeah, and I think that that to me is where I, I kind of started seeing the cracks in the armor for this movie right away in that scene alone. And I think there's a fact that like just how, again, how stiff Evangeline Lilly came off to me and even Paul Rudd, that to me was the biggest shock to me. And you're going to hear me say this quite a bit is how stiff a lot of people come off in this performances and, and not our, every scene, but a lot of these scenes, just, there's no energy. It just seems very like formulaic and just get through the point, get to the point. And it just, and it's a bummer because it, it, when you have your star, your stars in the movie, Evangeline Lee and, and, and Paul Rudd, it's even su- more surprising because Paul Rudd is so charming and, and you, you think the opposite. I was surprised he came off like that way to me. And maybe I'll think differently on the second viewing, but I got to tell you that first act, it kind of, I was, I immediately went, okay, I can kind of see it already. Like yeah. I, it kind of see the cracks. It just felt like, and the problem with the first act is it feels like a lot of, again, there's very charming, entertaining, funny moments. We highlighted them. I know we, we've kind of been dwelling on the negative for a pretty good run here, but there's some good stuff in the first act, but it's it just doesn't feel whole. It doesn't feel as complete as it should, and it does feel like, especially this first portion of the first act, we're just going through the motions to very quickly get everyone into the quantum realm because as Scott is realizing that this stuff is going on and then realizes that Cassie isn't doing these things by herself, obviously she has help. There's a we in this and what have they been doing? Ant science, according to Hank. I will say Michael Douglas also um, maybe doesn't get the emotional heft in this movie that he had in, in parts of the first one, but Clearly, Hank Pym was around to have a good time, and in his case, it mostly works in this one. I, I did find Michael Douglas very entertaining and, and a lot of fun in this one. Ant Science was uh, was one of those highlights. But we go downstairs, we find out that Cassie built a subatomic Hubble, or Hubel, as Thor would say, telescope, to map out the quantum realm. How is that happening? Well, it's sending a signal that collects data, and then it gets sent back. Janet is alarmed, and obviously in the previous scene, we also set up that everybody has been trying to, but especially Hope, they've been trying to get Janet to talk more about what happened in the quantum realm. She hasn't been sharing all the info that she is going to share over the course of this story because, hey, she spent 30 years living that. She just wants to be in the present. Totally understand that perspective uh, from Janet Van Dyne, 
But now she detects danger that we're all about to learn about. She shuts down the subatomic telescope, and then it turns itself back on, or rather, it's turned on on the other sides because, as Hawkeye told us all the way back in the first Avengers movie, doors open from both sides. So it opens back up from the other side, and down they go. And this action sequence of falling down and shrinking into and through the quantum realm and different parts of the quantum realm that we've seen in previous Ant-Man films and then now getting us into this wholly new part of it, that sequence I thought was great visually. I really liked it, especially the big giant man save uh, for Scott to save Cassie uh, at the end of it. But also there is like a little microcosm of of the story and, and what everybody cares about because... Hope intentionally lets herself go in the quantum realm as soon as she sees her parents being sucked in, so she wants to go save them. Um, But Scott is still holding on to Cassie, but then when she slips away, he lets himself go because he is going to do everything he can to to protect Cassie. So um, this is what gets us into the quantum realm. So it's mostly just visual action stuff before we get into how everybody acts when they first get there. But this sequence I thought was cool. And that's where you're going to see a lot of the praise that I have for this movie. I I certainly thought the visuals of what I would want, expect, hope for in a movie called Ant-Man and the Wasp Quantumania. Uh, Visually, I think this movie delivered in a lot of respects. And and this sequence uh, I thought was a real highlight. Yeah, this was, again, this, this is fine. I, I, I liked the Ant thing. That was kind of cool because we are watching a movie called Ant-Man. And yes. if I'm watching a movie oh, called yeah, Ant-Man. I, I, yeah, I totally glossed over the uh, the setup for the ants who were going to be a big deal later in the movie. Which, which again, I wish they would have reminded us of that more, to be honest. But that's we'll save that to later. Um, the thing I think I would say about this scene, and Michael Douglas is, he, he comes off stiff. Again, I think everyone almost comes off stiff. I don't except know. For I, one person. Yeah, I didn't really detect in my, uh, you know, stiffness in the eye of the beholder, I guess. I didn't really necessarily yeah. see the performances as stiff. It was more, I don't know. Yeah, just some things weren't fully fleshed out. But I, I really thought the actors were doing a, a great job with, with what they were tasked to do. And, and so performances, I I found myself really enjoying them. Like I, Like I said before, I... I enjoyed uh, Michael Douglas's performance as Hank Pym. I thought he, I thought he was a lot of fun in this one. Yeah, I, I, I listen, let me say it, let's say it this way. I don't say stiff and like where I'm like I think it's like all negative. It's just not. It's just it's just not what I'm used to. I think from them because I, I, I look at like you talk about the emotional heft from the first film. I thought Douglas was fantastic in that movie. I thought, I mean, I think, I mean, granted, I'm biased because I think that first Ant-Man movie is phenomenal. I love that movie. Yeah, I do too. Like, I I think, yeah, I've seen some people, um, you know, I really like this movie, but I've also seen some praise of like, this is the best of the three Ant-Man movies. And I can't, uh, I can't go there with you. I'm fine. Look, if you, if somebody really believes that and that's how they feel about it, I'm not going to take it away from them. I'm not going to take your favorite Ant-Man movie away from you. If it's quantum mania, that's totally fine. Um, but yeah, I, I think I, I would say I do. I would say I'd like this one better than Ant Man and the Wasp. So oh, you know, yeah. second favorite yeah. Ant Man movie. Yeah, but yeah, that well, it, that first one, in all fairness, difficult to top because I, I think you and I probably have it higher on our lists. Not that yeah. like I really do rankings, but you and I really have that movie higher on our theoretical, sure. hypothetical Marvel list than than most probably do. Yeah, and and so, you know, so I, I have an affection for most of these characters, but when you know, but I did like the setup of everything. I thought it was this was fine. 
Um, I like I, I like the ant aspect because one of the cool things that they've done with Ant Man is incorporate the idea of like oh like in the comic books back in the day and yes you know me I got to bring about the comics you know back in the day they didn't really do that that much because you know they kind of stuck with their motifs of I'm giant man I can only be giant man right or for the most part like it was like I'm only giant man or I'm the wasp I can only be the wasp and never be big or or whatever right like whereas with Ant Man they've kind of went the opposite and been like we're not going to be, you know, they had Hank Ben be Yellow Jacket back, you know, in the 70s to be big or small and whatever, right? But with Ant-Man, they're like, you know, screw it. We're just going to just have you be big or small. It doesn't really matter. And I like that aspect that, like, that's cool. But let's kind of keep it fun. And I, always, I remember thinking before the movie came out, Sean, like, how can they incorporate ants in this? Is it going to be small? Like, it's it's called Ant-Man, right? Like, that's thing you have to necessarily. But I thought they did. This was a great setup. And I, and I almost forgot about it to the end of the movie, which I can't wait to talk about more. Um, but I thought that was a clever little, little implant. And I kind of, I, I, yeah, I, they didn't do a great job. I think going back to it, even with the whole ear thing that like, you know, Hank keeps doing throughout the movie. It, I don't I kind of like, don't remember. I'm like, well, he's picking up something, but what is it? Like, I'm like, what? Like, I wish he would have, oh, I, at I that knew it form. was the ants. I, I was, See, I, I totally forgot. Like, yeah. I it. knew it was the ants, but I think it's also, I mean, it's okay if you, don't pick that up because I think it's also like the reveal is like, oh, that's what it that's what that was. It was the ants. And but I, I knew the ants were gonna come back and I, I was very skipping ahead a bit here. I, I do like that the ants factored into this story. I like that the resolution to this story really involved like the core mytho- the core mythology of Ant-Man. And and so like which you wouldn't necessarily guess. Or it wouldn't necessarily be a guarantee when you go bigger, right? When you say when you have Kang, a villain who gets to say you're out of your league, Ant Man, and in many ways that almost sounds and feels true. But then no, like Ant Man can still with the original Ant Man, Hank Pym can defeat Kang or at least make a difference in a battle with Kang, uh, doing things his way, even with the whole talking to ants bit of it. So that stuff I thought was really really cool. And so I think that it is, it's really awesome that they were incorporating that part of it into the mythology. But now, as far as the, um, the arrival in the quantum realm, so we're here now, and this is one of my, not one of my, that's overstating it, not one of my favorite things about the movie, but one of the things I appreciated is that this one really just kind of, which... You could. This could be a, a criticism, right? You could say, well, the science that you've explained in the Ant-Man movies just doesn't matter anymore, and you're throwing it away. And I would say, yeah, that's true, and it's fair to be critical of that if that's how you feel. But also, I'm like, if we're going to really get into this movie and have this story being told, not all of those rules can apply. And it's not even necessarily that they're completely shattered in the sense that, you know, well, they are and sort of disregarded. And, and the way they resolve that is Hank is just like, why aren't we dead? And, and Hope's just like, I don't That's basically this movie's response. Because, yeah, we've learned in the first movie you have to have a helmet on when you shrink. All of these different things. You have to be housed in some sort of structure so that you don't die. And how can you go down into the quantum realm and still breathe there? And, and all of these different things, which we've already acknowledged that you can survive in the quantum realm because Janet did for so long. But yeah, there's a lot of other Ant-Man science and quantum realm science, pseudoscience, fake science that we've been talking about in the MCU. And some of this contradicts that. And it's basically, 
yeah, stuff's weird in the quantum realm and it doesn't make a lot of sense and we can't really figure it out. And it's okay to just let your impossible science be impossible and inexplicable uh, in this instance. So I was fine with the way they did it to just uh, get rid of that. And then also I like the way that in this initial arrival, Janet was taking charge. She protects Hank and Hope from being seen. They don't know by what, um, but she does, Janet does. And they're on a mission to find Scott and Cassie as soon as possible. And then we catch, uh, we cut to Scott and Cassie. And I like this interaction between the two of them, like Paul Rudd and Scott Lang's whole, like, we're outside. It's basically like, can't we? it's like camping. Well, like, we've never been camping. Yeah, but we've always talked about it. That was a really funny line. And then also another good action beat of Ant-Man slash Giant-Man versus the sun before they meet the quantum people in the quantum realm. So this initial arrival for all of these characters, I, I was a big fan of. I, I thought... This is where things kind of picked up a bit again, but this is more in the action plotting of it as opposed to the emotional stakes, but that's fine too. Like this, this stuff needs to work. And I felt like this part of the movie was working for me and I was starting to have a good time with it. Yeah. I totally forgot what the rules were of the quantum realm, to be honest. So I'm going to say that right now. I don't remember any of that stuff and I hate you for reminding me. Um, so, <laughs> uh, the quantum realm is one of those things where I, I, we, I think we talked about on the, one of the shows that I was curious if they were going to incorporate this as like the new negative zone or um, incorporate you know something else with Marvel mythology from the comic books and kind of, you know, condense it a little bit. And as they kind of went through this whole you know, this whole movie, and I'll say it here now, I am I'm actually relieved a little bit, Sean, that this is actually not like it's it's its own thing. And I was very happy that, it, you know, it takes it borrows from some different things of like those dimensions, which I don't think precludes it, them from ever using it again, potentially. But it was nice to get a different like kind of feel for this this universe. And it wasn't it felt more uh, um, MCU original based than I think than anything we've seen before, necessarily. I, at least again, I think I think there is a quantum realm in the comic books, but I I know very little of it. If it, and I'm pretty sure it has nothing to do with any of those things we have and we see in this movie. Um, so that being said, it was just nice to kind of see a, a different kind of side of things, and it wasn't like it was kind of more of a a creative more of a creative um, uh, adventure as far as design wise. I felt for the MCU that they were giving us immediately. So that was this was kind of that first introduction to it. And I definitely agree with you. Things picked up for them overall, because I think that's it's more exciting to see this different world we don't know. And I don't and I don't know if the performances were better necessarily. I don't remember them sending out to me still at that point. But I will say that I think the reason why I started enjoying the movie more at that point was because I have something else to focus on other than like some of the clunky dialogue or some of the exposition that we're getting because there is it looks pretty good. Like the, like I know you could criticize a lot of CGI shots when you could see it's obviously green screen or whatever. But I got to say, like, I thought it was a really good blending of things in this that I, I never felt that I was looking at. I mean, I knew I was looking at a computer screen, but it just felt it, it felt very natural to me. And I, yeah. I will say, I, I I thought the special effects were really well done in this, way better than I was anticipating necessarily. At least for my first viewing. Maybe I'll watch it again. I think it looks like garbage. I don't know, but I definitely felt like with all of the sh the shortages of, of special effects companies and things like that, um, I, I will say that I felt like whoever did this and everyone, all the people who contributed to this, did a phenomenal job, did a great job. Their hard work paid off because. 
I thought this looked pretty good for the most part, like of, of CGI. And I thought this it did a good job. It was a good, the whole introduction of like, you know, the, the ship going overhead was a good like demonstration of what we're going to be getting throughout the entire movie in the quantum realm. Yeah, I thought it looked really great visually. And, and that's an, another example of beauty in the eye of the beholder, right? So look good to me, may not have looked as great to someone else, but and I know as far as the making of this, there's some combination of green or blue screen, but then also the volume. They use that technology, that stagecraft technology, like the Mandalorian, also most recently in terms of Marvel, uh, certainly are on the big screen. Thor Love and Thunder used it. And I, I don't know that I really had a keen enough eye to detect when it was green or blue screen versus when it was the volume, although usually when it's tighter, that's the volume because you can't have as big of a set. But I thought... The VFX looked great. Sometimes, you know, it was like, okay, it's very clear they're not actually standing in this environment. Sometimes the actors felt very separate from the environment around that's part them. part of the course, right? But, uh, just, but yeah, yeah. We're, we're used to that. And, and for the most part, though, I, I thought it was pretty seamless outside of a, a few shots here and there, which for a movie that is almost entirely VFX shots, like, I can live with that. That's That's okay. So, um, yeah, visually, I, I thought it looked, uh, I thought it looked good. Now, uh, speaking of the quantum realm and quantum people in the quantum realm, I think this is where we're going to get into, and I know we're going to, we're not necessarily going in the order of the film because there's a lot of cutting back and forth between Scott and Cassie's journey versus Hank and Janet and Hope's journey. So sticking with Scott and Cassie for uh, a little bit here, and I'll, I'll stop us before we get to MODOK. So... It's the whole drink the o drink the ooze thing, and as we're meeting these quantum people, we meet Veb, who doesn't have holes. I really like that they found a spot for David Dasmalshin, who is the voice of the character Veb. Kurt, as you know, a member of the uh, a member of the Entourage from the first two movies. So the Entourage nowhere to be found in this movie, but uh, at least David Dasmalshin, there was an actual spot for him <laughs> to. Uh, to at least be somewhere in this. I you know, didn't necessarily get a chance to uh, again, reprise the same role, but I enjoyed Veb. And then we meet kind of the leader of these Freedom Fighters, or we don't meet her just yet, but Gentora, uh, played by Katie O'Brien. Katie O'Brien also played the character Kimball in season seven of Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. for three episodes. Uh, we meet Quaz, played by William Jackson Harper. William Jackson Harper, Chidi Adagonye from The Good Place, somebody who was among my top choices for Reed Richards slash Mr. Fantastic in the MCU. Once we found out he was going to be in this movie, I was pretty sure he wasn't going to be Reed Richards. I enjoy the character of Quaz in the mind reading and the glowing head and all of that stuff. But man, William Jackson Harper was capable of a much larger role in the MCU, even if it wasn't Reed Richards. And so I, I do kind of feel like that's uh, and better dialogue. A, a, a missed opportunity. And then we had, you know, the guy with the circle, like laser fire face, oh, whatever. Zolom, I love him. Uh, oh voiced by James Cutler. Ooh, ooh. Yeah, that Zolom was a really cool character wanting to torture everybody and, and all of that stuff. Like, so as we meet this kind of resistance to Kang the Conqueror, I think this is another um, point of diverging for for potentially for audiences because we have kind of our core cast of the Ant-Man franchise. And now we're being introduced to this entirely other group of characters. And yeah. 
I was up for this. I, I thought this was cool. I thought these characters added to the craziness of the quantum realm. I actually thought they gave the movie some stakes that were maybe lacking from our main characters because these are the ones who've been dealing with Kang the entire time. So I enjoyed them. And, and Gentora, I thought, was a really cool character. I could have used, uh, I could have done without Cassie later in the film telling us Gentora's cool. Like the whole damn you're cool line was a little over the top and on the nose for me. Like, I know she's cool. Uh, <laughs> she can just yeah, be right. cool. We don't have to, you don't have to tell the audience she's cool. So, I uh, mean, I know characters acknowledge each other are cool. So it's not like that's the first time that's happened. But anyway, um, I like these characters and I thought this also added into the mix of what made the final battle eventually so great in this movie. But I, I do wonder if this is a, a point where maybe some people are, are losing a little bit, felt like maybe the movie was losing some steam because, again, now we're taking it away from the characters that we're really trying to focus on. So, you know, when you divide the audience's focus, which Marvel has been able to do quite a bit for a very long time, so it's not like it's a new thing for them to just introduce a bunch of new characters, um, but then it really does put a lot of extra emphasis on your ability to, and an importance on your ability to introduce them effectively and get the audience to connect with them. And and so even though I, I like their stakes, at the same time, it, it does still, it still feels a little like, yeah, we get it in, in the sense of like, okay, yeah, the, you know, the people who have to fight against the the arch villain, like the, the rebellion, so to speak, which Kang flat out calls them a rebellion later on. So this is where it's, I could see this feeling a little too familiar for the audience, but the quantum realm application of it all made it unique enough for me. And also, I just found myself enjoying these characters, um, especially Gentora and, well, not even especially, Veb, Gentora, Quaz, and, and Zolom. I enjoyed all four of these characters um, to, ver to varying degrees, and I thought they were cool. You know, this is where I would say I wish they would have done a little bit differently. Um, I love all these, most of these characters too. I, and I, I like all the designs too. And I, by all means, I think these are, these are more original creative. Um, the, some of the decisions they had were the, all the designs didn't work for me necessarily that they do in this movie, but I'd say most of the, most of them did. Um, one of the things I think this movie should have done, and I said before a little bit was focus more on just Scott and, uh, Cassie and less on like having like two different sects of people, like, you know, split up and then meeting up back up together. Because like you said, like there's a lot of intercutting and going back and forth, back and forth. Well, I think that's kind of what you need to do though. Like you do need to pair them off. So that way they get more of that one-on-one -on -one time to have no, those I, conversations. No, I, like, it's harder to facilitate yes. those conversations when you keep them, when you keep the whole group there on screen at the same time. I, I agree with that, but the, my point is, I wish they would have made a less less people going to the quantum realm in general and focus more on Cassie and and Scott's relationship, like we kind of talked about before. I feel like I would have liked that more. I don't. I'm not saying like get rid of Janet. I'm not sure how we would have done it, but I almost feel like there should you definitely be less can't get people. rid of Janet in this movie. She's well, doing right, a lot yeah. of heavy lifting. Yeah. So I just feel like it should have been more focused on those that group of people and that group of of, of less away from you know the the guy Bill Murray's character we'll get into in a second but I just like staying with them more and then would have it would have been nicer to have it be set together less people maybe less you know maybe Hank didn't have to be there or whatever I don't know but to me 
I feel like it should have been less people, more of a focus on Cassie and Scott. And you had those moments of developing these other characters that are with, because I like them. I wanted to see them more. And that's the thing of going back and forth, back and forth. It's just a little, it's a little jarring. And because some of the performances still not like of like the main uh, quantum realm people, but like, some of those performances we're getting are still, in my opinion, were stiff. It just was kind of like jarring sometimes going back and forth. And I was like, okay, you know, before Jonathan shows up, it just, let's get to the point was where I felt like to me where I wanted to go. Um, and I like, or stick around with, with Scott and Cassie. Cause I was liking their dynamic in some, in some ways too. Cause I wanted to learn more about Cassie and see them develop. Cause I thought maybe they developed that more. It's never really quite got to that point where I wanted to see their relationship and just that inter- that chemistry between the, the the father and the daughter, at least to me. So I, I liked all this stuff. I didn't like um, the my reader guy. I forgot, I forgot his name already. Quaz. Um, I didn't like his that character. It just his dialogue when when they're talking. It just did not work for me. Like when he's like, "Hey," they have the whole funny thing. Like, stop saying that. It's like it's just it was. I was like, okay, this is this guy's already obnoxious, and it's not the actor. It was just it's the, the character themselves was not into, and it just felt like a, a very much a very convenient device to like get certain ways. I I don't know. I just did not. He's one of my least favorite of the new characters we we, we got inter- introduced. Um, nothing against the actor, just did not like the character and the development. Well, he was development. also he was also oh. a shortcut, right? Like how exactly. how yeah. do we get the quantum people to? Um, freedom fighters, whatever they are. Like, how do you get them to trust Cassie and Scott? Well, you need a guy who can just immediately read their minds and be like the, the quantum realm lie detector and be like, no, they're fine. Like, and that's kind of it. Right. And so even though that doesn't, um, that doesn't solve everything as Jintura says, like she's, they still lure danger toward all of these people. And that's, you know, what they're not, they don't intend to do it, but they're doing it anyway for Scott and Cassie, but at least everybody knows like, Oh, we don't have to kill these people in the sense that they mean us harm. So it is a bit of that. I think that's kind of where Quaz serves almost more as a plot device than a character, which is tricky. But yeah, what I enjoyed about this was William Jackson Harper, the performance, which I think again, was getting more out of the character than what was there, but that I'm not, I'm not here to say this is like one of the hidden gems and best characters in the, destined to be a future most underrated character of the MCU. No, it's not that level. Um, Because again, as I said, there's a enjoyable performance by the actor, but also more of a more of a plot device than a character. But um, moving back to Hank and Janet and Hope. So I I really liked the sequence of when Janet gets them a ride. This is the stuff that like all the Janet stuff. I mean, more of the emotional stakes with Kang is, is where it got really great. But I was already having a good time. As I said, you go to the prologue and just seeing Janet in action, but also her taking charge in, in this at this part of the movie of, you know, her history in the quantum realm, her relationships in the quantum realm, and the whole, like, intimidating guy with the fight, but then that's just the proving yourself whatever with the whole good stab, um, as Hank asks about. That kind of stuff I like. And that's where, you know, I, I've seen, and you and I, texted about that you and I were texting about this before either of us saw the movie when you had just caught wind of some of the other reactions that were out there and you know comparisons to Star Wars and and stuff like that and and I understand where those comparisons come from and I totally felt some of that while watching this movie the fact that Kang talks about putting down rebellions as I said that's not an accident that feels much more of an homage uh, than anything else and 
this sequence and a lot of this quantum realm stuff, it, it felt, I mean, they're literally in a cantina here in a few minutes, but there's, it's a little Star Wars-y, but it's also like a little Mad Max, not quite Dune, but you know, that more Mad Max to me than Dune, uh, just in terms of how crazy all the characters look. So there's a lot of the stuff that I like and just echoes of other, of other science fiction and post-apocalyptic sorts of things and all that stuff that I just had a lot of fun with. And, and I really enjoyed this movie leaning into that. Sequences like that, visuals like that. That's what I'm here. That's part of what I'm here for. When you have a movie called Ant-Man and the Wasp, Quantum Mania, it creates a certain set of expectations, at least for me as an audience member. And that's where like the wackiness of all of this stuff and the sci-fi of, of all of this stuff, I was in more science fantasy, but like that's where all of this stuff was really working for me. And I, I liked that. Uh, Janet sequence with the whole good stabbing a lot and getting them a ride, which gets them to the cantina. We meet Broccoli Guy for the first time, and they're meeting up with Janet wants to get help from Krylar, who was now Lord Krylar, even though he fought that title, as played by Bill Murray. Um, as you could easily anticipate, and basically as soon as Bill Murray steps out there, <laughs> the betrayal is going to happen, and uh, Lord Krylar, who used to work with and fight alongside Janet Van Dyne since Janet left. And of course, not everybody is uh, thinking favorably about Janet for leaving them behind in the first place. Uh, since Janet left, obviously Krylar has now aligned himself with Kang the Conqueror. So this is Bill Murray's debut in the MCU, and it's fine. He's being weird Bill Murray and, and even creepy Bill Murray in uh, in this sequence with the wild stuff that he and uh, and Janet got up to. It was fine. Uh, like, I just, yeah. I, I don't know, when you think of having somebody like Bill Murray in the MCU, you, you might want a, a little bit more than that. Although, upon further review, like, I, I thought, at first, I just thought maybe he got eaten by, because he eats a, a live thing and then gets, then, of course, Hank sizes it up. Another one up, and we see Krylar get grabbed by it. But upon further review and seeing the movie multiple times, it looks like he gets thrown he gets thrown away by that thing. So Krylar could potentially come back. I don't care if Krylar ever does, because uh, this character is just whatever uh, in in the MCU. But that's not. It, it's weird though, like that Bill Murray would be somebody like Bill Murray would be part of this scene, and that's not at all what my favorite part of this is. I think the whole you know bringing back the whole drink the ooze bit. So and I, the whole system of the ooze and everybody being able to understand each other, again, forget about it making sense. It's quantum mania. So I'm good with that part of it. And I just like getting uh, more sense of, of Janet's history, her taking command, taking charge in this story and carrying so much of this I thought was great. And, and frankly, I, well, we get to more of it e even later on in the movie, but it, I, it's just... It bears saying now and, and maybe repeating later that this is the kind of stuff like that I was hoping for and not even necessarily knowing I was hoping for. Like when they announced at Comic-Con several years ago that Michelle Pfeiffer was going to be Janet Van Dyne in the MCU, I got really excited and then felt kind of let down by the role they gave her in the previous Ant-Man and the Wasp film. But in this one, they finally, they really do make good on her being there and they give her a lot to do and everything that she's a part of, she makes it better than probably it had any right to be. <laughs> so uh, there's a lot that she's doing that that's really elevating the scenes that she's in, including this one, I thought. 
Yeah, this was definitely a slowdown scene, and it kind of felt like a, a, a vehicle to, we got Bill Murray, so let's let's make this, extend this out, you know, kind of a thing. And, and Bill Murray is just, he's an, he's an interesting. I'll, ne- I'll never forget, Sean, when I was watching an interview with Dan Aykroyd years and years and years ago before, like probably early, two, like mid-2000s. He's on like Oprah or something, and Dan Aykroyd, they asked him about Ghostbusters 3, and he goes, oh, you can never tame the Murricane. And that's exactly, I always think about that, is he's like the Murricane, and he's just a force of nature uh, for good and for bad. And I think in this case, it feels like Bill's kind of, I don't know what he's doing. It just it just didn't feel like the the, the right role for him, in my opinion. It just I, I feel like if he's you're going to cast being a personality him, and not a character. So exactly. Quaz yeah. is a plot device. Krylar is a personality. And yeah, I, I think the what made it work for me is not because Krylar was the best or most interesting character. What made it work for me was really more Michelle Pfeiffer's performance as he is saying, like, basically, a lot of people died because of you. And, you know, getting into the guilt that Janet might feel for leaving because there were people that she fought alongside and probably doesn't feel bad at all about anything that happened to Krylar because he's made use of the situation for himself. But she knows others that were probably part of the fight with her. And and we know, I mean, everybody knows her name, right? Gentura knows her name and and doesn't necessarily think about Janet um, all that favorably. And so I, I think at least getting some of that backstory for janet that was helpful and and that part i liked in the story it just didn't matter it could have been another actor in that scene and i would have gotten the same info because it was really more about janet than it was about krylar which by the way is fine i just i I don't know why you you needed that to be bill murray (laughs) so because i don't actually think he elevated the scene i i think not at all. Anybody no. else in there, it's going to be Michelle Pfeiffer who actually makes that scene work. But at least Bill Murray gets to be the first person in the MCU to say mechanized organism designed only for killing because he knows that he, whoever he is, is where all these ominous mentions of uh, the, the name that we'll eventually know as Kang dispatch the hunter to get their other friends, that being Scott and Cassie. By the way, of course... Hank and Hope and Janet, they they escape <laughs> from Krylar. Um, but that sets up Modoc. And I don't know where this one, uh, this is another one where just stuff gets really weird with Modoc. And, and I do wonder, like, what did general audiences even think of this? I, I don't know. All I know is Modoc has gotten in the screenings that I have been in. Modoc got some of the biggest laughs. So I, I kind of feel like people dig Modoc, but maybe not all. Uh, across the board but we get some stuff here as this fight is happening and we haven't been introduced to modok yet but obviously we see again this recurring theme for scott and his priorities right he just wants to protect cassie he doesn't want to get involved in this fight because that's going to put cassie at risk and she's the one saying he's saying it's not our fight and she hits him back with the line just because it's not happening to you doesn't mean it's not happening so Obviously, Cassie is more of who Scott was when Scott was younger in terms of the choices that she's going to make. Scott, thinking differently now as a parent, wants to protect Cassie, which, again, just to reiterate, I think is more effective if you 
don't rely exclusively on the general concept of parents wanting to protect their children. And again, go back to what Scott specifically and really get to the weight of his loss. If that's defined earlier in the movie, then I think it gives his it it defines his stakes in a a better, I think just a stronger way than what we got in this movie, even though I know the basic concept is simple enough to understand. But I think as far as Cassie wanting to help, but we see that she's not necessarily good at it. So the whole like, you know, jump and tap, whatever Ant-Man lessons and shrinking and whatever lessons. Okay, that's fine. The father daughter superhero team and trying to teach her if we're going to do this, here's how you need to do it. That stuff I like. I also like, like, did you see that? No, I didn't. You were (laughs) you were this small. That was funny stuff. And like just playing with the absurdity of Ant-Man and ant related sizing characters doing their thing. So that stuff I liked, and it was a good action sequence. And when Modok shows up, it looks cool as hell. Modok just zipping through and firing down in that battle. And then the the whole, like, the smoke and then the big bright lights and just blinding Scott and Cassie and how Modok tries to be all ominous. And they tell us before they tell the main characters of who this guy is, as we're seeing Corey Stoll, Darren Cross from the first Ant-Man movie. And then Scott catches up and we get Darren and then we get the face reveal behind uh, behind the mask. I was really curious, Paul, when I saw the movie, what you were going to think of MODOK. Because, look, MODOK is inherently ridiculous in the comic books. So the character was destined to be ridiculous in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. I just wasn't sure if this was going to be the brand of ridiculous that you would like or respond to for MODOK, especially since it was so specific to this other character, Darren, who is not MODOK in the comic books. But this really worked for me. I thought that Corey Stoll was so funny in this, and then just the look of the character was so absurd and off-putting, but not like totally unpleasant to look at. Um, yes. still like off-putting, but you're still able to like keep looking at a giant IMAX screen with this big head. Um, I had a lot of fun with Modoc, and I, I liked the whole thing of it's a great juxtaposition with Kang because both characters are, are initially spoken about in very ominous terms. Right. But Kang lives up to that billing. Modoc totally doesn't. And I think it's a it's a good juxtaposition of just those two villains and, and showing how different the threat level is and, and all of that stuff. It all just worked for me uh, in, in terms of MODOK. I had a blast with this character from beginning to possible end. I loved MODOK, and I think you nailed it that it's, it's, you gotta go a tight, go walk a tight rope to really, uh, to make this character believable, not, take it completely seriously to be just ridiculous, but also not be so dumb that like you can't take it seriously either. It's, it's and you, the thing is, it's a hard thing to do. And the concept of having it not be too grotesque, but also you can't stop, but look at it. And you know what I mean? Like that's the same thing with the comic book. Like you, that, that design was so, you know, it's so unique that, you you can't you can't help but love and look at it and be like man Modoka looks so ridiculous you know, and for years I always for, always got Zola and Modok confused because they're just kind of both like the whole head motif kind of a thing I always got those two confused I don't know just what I did, um, and if you don't know why I got Zola confused just look at the comic portion and just a little it's just weird, um, I 
I like this version of Modoc, and I think it works so well on on the, on the amount of levels they they give Darren uh, back into the movie. Um, he's both frightening, he's deadly, he's also ridiculous. Um, mm-hmm. They play up they play up just enough of his ridiculousness to make him entertaining, but they don't sacrifice the fact that he is a he is a threat. Like he's not like someone to take lightly. He's a legitimate threat, and I think that there's they leave enough room for him to yes. And I mean, eventual end. I, I, I do think they leave room for him to be out of this point and, and to come back at some point through something and, and to be closer back to his original roots, to be quite honest. I, I definitely think that there's ways for him to get out of the quantum realm. I think there's ways for him to be, he's a smart guy, right? Like Darren is, Hell, you know, he's the way things go. Now there could be a Modoc variant who isn't Darren well said so i mean like i i just i'm just gonna say that i think this is a great way to introduce a great uh ridiculous character and you you not saying you have to use him necessarily but you have him in your back pocket when you do need something like that and i'm not sure what that what that is but if you want to you know do advanced uh ideas and mechanics even further than what we got in iron man 3 modok which was originally created through aim you could inter- introduce that whole idea with Darren if he comes back or whatever, like like you said, or or a variant or you know what have you. But there's ways to incorporate that, and I think that's if you want to use Aim and use Modok in that sense. So there's lots of different ways you could do this, and I think the way to get the audience on board was through Quantum Mania was a brilliant move, and I think they 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 towed a great line of ridiculousness, but also like have him be deadly. It, it worked. It worked. He worked for me completely. He definitely was. I think the comedic uh, success of the of the movie, like he was definitely, I think, someone that people wanted more of, and they probably should have put more of him in the movie. To be quite honest, um, that's again, that's just my opinion. Um, I think he, I'm not saying you sh- he should have been in it like a ton more, but a little bit more, like peppered him in, and then maybe a little bit earlier in the mo- movie would have been a little bit better. But uh, I loved Modok. I thought he was great, and I I want to see more Modok. I just don't know when we're gonna see him, and that might be also a motif of this movie or in this throughout this movie too. Sean is where do things kind of go from here? Because with the announcements, you don't really know. Well, Modok, you could see him in Cap, maybe because he's kind of a Captain America villain in some ways. Not necessarily in the MCU, but even then it's like, how does that work? So there's a couple things like, I don't really know how they're going to line things up and that Modoc and even some of these things they do in this movie, it kind of fall in line with that. So, but I, otherwise I love Modoc. I thought it was amazing. And by the way, little Modoc booty was both frightening <laughs> and hysterical. I, and I just yes. that I was both laughing and being like, I can't believe they did that. So kudos to whoever got hey, away with you that. Know what? that Hulk got to show his butt, so it's only fair, fair that Modoc get to show his. Something about the third movie, right, in a trilogy. So, sure, right? sure. <laughs> although it didn't be in quadrilogy now for Thor, but yeah, yeah. Ragnarok gets Hulk butt, and Man and the Wasp: Quantum Mania gets uh, Modoc butt. Um, did not know I, I ever wanted or needed to see that, and I still didn't want or need to see it, but I sure laughed at it when they showed it to me because that was really funny, and I, I just like. I like that there was a, a lot of Darren, even though he didn't want to go by the name anymore. There was a lot right. of Darren that right. kind of shined through because Darren in the first movie really thought, even though he was a, you know, such a dick, that he was, he always kind of, you could tell he thought of himself as like the nice, understanding guy, especially the way he would talk to Hope and Hank, Scott, whoever. And that's also Modoc, where he's like crazy and screaming at you and trying to kill you. 
but then also being super familiar, like, oh, Cassie, I almost didn't recognize you, even though the last time I saw you, I was trying to kill you when you were a small child. So that was also one of the other lines I liked in the movie, though, when Scott was talking about wanting way back in the car ride home from jail, when Scott was like, I just want you to have a normal life. She's like, Dad, a guy dressed like a bee tried to kill me in my room when I was six. <laughs> like, I've never had a normal life. Uh, that was a really good line. But yeah, Modoc was a lot of fun, and, and I'll have a couple more things to say about Modoc as we go on. But yeah, the history of Modoc as Scott and Cassie are in jail, um, I thought was really good. But then we get the backstory of Kang, and we find out about uh, we find out about Janet and her history with Kang. So who was that guy? Wondering what is this place? He was a scientist um, who got stranded there needed help, had this super powerful ship, needed help to repair his engine core, which we find out is a multiversal engine core. And so Janet was working to help him with that. And they bonded, right? And there's a great scene. This is the stuff that, uh, you know, one or two scenes that are little pieces like this in the first act of the movie might have helped. Just the scene where Kang and Janet are sitting down, taking a break from their work, and she... She actually gets to voice what Scott doesn't, right? And and it's okay that Janet gets this moment. She should. But Scott also needed, I think, a moment similar to this where she explains how it hurts her to not be around her daughter. And not just in the obvious way of audience members understand relationships between parents and children. But no, specifically, here's what Janet's upset about is she feels like she lied to her daughter. She said she was going to be back and she never came back home. And she knows that her daughter is up there above the quantum realm, living her life without her. And it hurts Janet to not be able to be there for her. And it's just nice to have characters, I don't know, express their emotions. It's a good thing in storytelling. So, uh, but also we see where this, you get this bond with Kang and that this is what makes Jonathan Majors so great as this character is that he has so many different levels to this, but this is one of the the hidden weapons of, of Kang, not just like, the crazy powers of his suit. But I think that, that Janet feels this connection to Kang, but also what makes him a full and complete character is Kang believes in all sincerity that he has this connection with Janet. And he likes that relationship that the two of them have. And we don't get the suggestion like with Krylar that it was romantic. Maybe it was, maybe it wasn't. It mostly looks like a, a friendship, but this is something Kang actually values Janet and he respects Janet, not above his mission, not above all else, as we'll see when, when that situation comes to a head. But in this moment, he genuinely cares about Janet and wants Janet to get what Janet wants to have. I want you to be able to have that time back with your daughter. I want you, I want to help you get to that point where she opens the door and you're there where you get to keep your promise because time isn't what you think it is. I can do that for you and I want to do that for you. I like that about the character. That's what makes, that's what adds dimension to the character. That's what makes Kang a person and not just a conqueror. And, and so that moment for Jonathan Majors and Michelle Pfeiffer, to her credit for her performance as Janet, that's one of my favorite scenes in the movie because it is just this very, very human scene between two characters. With all the multiversal quantum mania stakes of this whole thing, simple moments like that between characters understanding each other and what they want and what they want to do for each other, 
Um, even if at that point, Janet doesn't understand exactly what she's helping Kang with, it just, it, it I don't know, it just feels very real and, and very nice uh, in this crazy uh, backdrop that that is Quantumania. So these are the kind of moments that that really make the storytelling feel more complete. And so when I say that there's a lot of good stuff here in Acts 2 and 3 that could have helped out Act 1 and even earlier parts of Act 2, this is the kind of stuff that, that should have been sprinkled in to earlier parts in the film um, that really would have, I think, added to it. Yeah, man, I'm, I'm, I'm going to wait a lot of my praise for some of Jonathan Major's stuff um, as we get later in the movie, specifically the post credit scene. Um, but I just want to say that this definitely, you know, I, I'm enjoying the movie and I'm anticipating him showing up and getting the this version of Kang and seeing the relationship and seeing like and you, you that's brilliantly said about uh, Kang about how it's not just like they're they have a relationship. You see the vow Kang, you can tell Kang values uh, Janet. Like not as like a pawn, but as like, I'm going to help this person. Right. Like I'm, I'm going to give this person what they want. They're going to help me. I'm going to help them. It's not like I'm going to use them and then I'm going to, you know, it's, you don't get that sense. And there is this sense of, I don't want to say nobility with Kang because he's obviously, it's, you know, insane. What he, it's what is, he believes is nobility. Right, 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 right. It's yeah, yeah obviously you like know, any you, like any great villain slash antagonist, right. he believes he has a code that matters. Yeah, he believes he's the hero, right? And so I I think you see that there, and there is an affection for Janet. Like I don't and, and again, I I never took it as you know, uh, more than just friends, but he can tell he cares about her and like he values her and he also wants to help her. Like and it's all there in the performance. It's there in the writing, but it's more in the way that he Again, his his Jonathan Major's performance is so good, and it, it, I think this is such a crucial thing because we all know Kang's gonna look awesome. We all know Kang is gonna is gonna be rad, and like we've seen the trailers, we see Kang in action. We know Jonathan Majors has that down, no problem. But for the general audience and for the you know the main the, you know mainstream people who are watching these movies and have no affection for the, like Kang other than they've seen a couple of shots, he looks fine, whatever. This is the stuff that matters. You have to establish who this character is and have him be. Like there's gotta be something valuable there. And Majors just knocks it out of the park without it's like a softball. He launched him a softball and he's belted into the next universe with his performance, just in the subtleties and what he does. And it's so good. And it immediately, you're just like waiting for the, the ball to drop of her to find out who this guy really is. Right. And it's like knowing that's coming, but you see this, this really is innocence with this man before, you know, this friend that someone she like confides in basically and tell, you know, yeah. is telling him like my daughter, like I gave, I, you know, she's pouring her heart to this guy and this guy's like, I'm going to give it back to you. Yeah. And then she finds out the guy who's going to give it back to me is a mass murderer and is going to destroy. It's like, it's, it's, yeah. it's it heartbreaking is, because you know, as the, as the audience member, like this, this relationship, this bond is very sweet, but you just know it's not going to work out. It's yeah. destined to end in heartbreak for Janet in again, not necessarily in a heartbreak in a romantic way, just in terms of like, I thought I was helping somebody who was a really You're good person. Me, and, mm -hmm. and this person was also going to help me in turn. Like I, I really yeah. thought that this was, that this was it, that, you know, that this was my way home, but also that, yeah, like I was helping somebody who deserved to be helped and, and was a really good and ge genuinely good person. 
Right. And even for Kang, he's disappointed by where yeah. the situation leaves them. He does something that villains don't normally do. So there's the moment because his ship is neurokinetic. This is where Janet, as they fix the multiversal engine core and the, the ship is firing up, she touches the ship and then she sees who Kang really is and what Kang does, what he will continue to do if she if he gets out. Normally, when the antagonist realizes like they've been found out, it's like, oh, I have to kill you now. That yeah. That's usually how it goes. Right. Kang is very sad at what she's just realized, and he tries to take it back. He, try, he tries as hard as he can. Like, I want to keep this as a friendship. I want to keep the two of us on good terms. Like, forget about what you saw. I don't care what you just saw. I made you a promise. Let me keep it. Let me take you home. Like, let's just... Let's fulfill this relationship, this friendship, and everything that we've done to help each other. Let's see this through. I don't care what you think you know about me now or what you just not think you know, what you actually know about me now. Let's set all of that aside so I can at least have that because I think Kang, he is an exile, right? He was exiled from a group that we will see later, exiled by himself, and so or himself, versions of himself, variants of himself to be more specific with my mcu terminology Jeez. I, I think i know i'm so bad at this <laughs> who do you think you are ah just a, not an mcu not a real mcu mean? fan yeah not a real mcu fan names? i'll tell you that you much names? Oh my yeah. God, I can't believe it. <laughs> so it's just he's so disappointed by it because I, I think kang is isolated i think he is lonely yeah. being in the not like oh let's feel bad for kang as he kills trillions no we don't have to feel bad for him but we can empathize with him a little bit because uh, that's what we do in this heightened storytelling. Even people who don't necessarily deserve that can get some from us anyway. And so I think that's the case for Kang. Like It was nice for him to have a friend for a little while. And as he's going to go on and continue his journey, and as he said, when she said, like, what are you going to do when you get out of here? He's gonna, he says he's going to win. And we know what that means for him and, and all that he has to do. But all of that winning, so everything he's done before that moment was by before he went to the quantum realm, he was on he was on his own by himself. Everything he's gonna do after he leaves is gonna be on his own and by himself. This is the one period in his life where he had a friend and he wants to be able to hold on to that. I think I genuinely believe that Kang wants to be able to hold on to that, and he does and that's so that's why he's trying to make this deal that Janet just knows that she can't make. And so she sacrifices her own trip home to make sure that Kang isn't able to leave. She strands herself in the quantum realm along with him because he, maybe she's not gonna, never going to get out, but that also means he won't either. So she makes a sacrifice. And, and frankly, when I go back to this whole journey with, uh, with Scott and, and where he's at, which I'll, I'll talk a little bit more as we go on, like here's making a choice, Janet making a choice that we're not so sure Scott would make at this point because she has a ticket home, but that's not worth what she knows now will be the consequence uh, consequences of Kang getting out. So it's a very heroic and just a massive sacrifice by Janet to do this in the first place, but also um, emotionally it, it hurts her on, on multiple levels, but I think it really hurts Kang too because he even says, when we catch up to him in the present day, 
in his, as he's introducing himself to Scott and wondering if Scott is an Avenger that uh, that Kang has killed before. Is he the one with the hammer? So funny bit of Paul Rudd talking about how he and Thor get confused get confused with each other. Similar body types, Paul Rudd and Chris Hemsworth or Scott Lang and Thor, respectively, in the MCU. Um, I think when Scott is when Scott mentions that Janet never mentioned anything about Kang, he takes a beat. And even says, oh, I, I suppose that's not a surprise. But, like, I think he is hurt by that. I, I genuinely think that Kang liked having that friendship and values it and is disappointed, um, really disappointed that it had to end. And so the Kang that we get now in the present day, it's not necessarily the the very humanized version of Kang that we got um, in the flashback sequences as, as Janet was talking to Hope and Hank this version that we get in the present day with Scott and Cassie, I mentioned levels to Jonathan Majors, and we will see other levels where Kang like dials it up to 11, and it's freaking mm-hmm. awesome. But I love this version of Kang, too, where he is just so chilling in this sequence. And because he's just so calm when he talks to Scott, mm-hmm. everything that he's talking him through, and even when Modoc comes into the, the equation, when he's like, I hear you're a great thief. And then Modoc tries to chime in on the conversation. He says, do not speak, not don't speak when I'm speaking. Do not speak when I am in the room is the dynamic between Modoc and Kang. And as Kang is laying everything out of we can help each other, here's what I want you to do. Scott knows that that's the, you know, that multiversal engine core that Janet blew up. Scott has to shrink it back down. Scott doesn't want to help Kang because he can obviously tell this is a bad dude. But the way Kang threatens Scott and threatens Cassie without even, he's not raising his voice yet. He's just being very cold, very calculating, very matter of fact, not wasting words or anything like that. Just saying exactly what needs to be said, because as he says, I am a man who likes to be understood, which also was a really great line. And this is it for Scott, right? Is that either he helps Kang, which he knows he shouldn't do and doesn't want to do, or Kang is going to kill Cassie. We see Kang hurting Cassie, and then he puts he just makes it very clear for Scott that either you help me or I kill Cassie in front of you, and I make you relive that moment over and over and over again until you beg me to die, um, beg him to end Scott's life. So obviously that's a situation that Scott Lang wants to avoid. So in order to prevent Cassie's immediate death, he has to agree to help Kang which means he's going to have to jump down and, and get the shrink back down that multiversal engine core. But this modern day introduction to Kang as not the stranded scientist, but as the supervillain Kang, uh, the multiversal threat of Kang to all of time and space Kang, man. Um, that's why I said with Jonathan Majors, like, it's not a great performance. It's a great set of performances that we are getting from him in this movie and obviously so many more when you consider he was already a different variant um, or not. <laughs> he Who Remains, and more on that in a bit. Uh, he Who Remains in Loki. Now here we get him in, you know, we got, I mean, same guy with, you know, the interaction with Janet, but a very different side of him there versus what we get now in this scene with Scott and Cassie. Jonathan Majors is just, uh, as I said, I'm, I mean, sure, uh, reasonable minds can can differ, but I don't know. Objectively speaking, this is an amazing performance by Jonathan Majors, or as I said, 
set of performances. He's he's doing so much, and we haven't even gotten to everything he does in this movie yet. This, you said chilling, and you're you're not wrong. And I I think I listen. I I, I rewatched the season finale of of Loki. You know. And I meant to do it before the movie, but I did it afterwards. I had to go see it, especially after we watched this movie. And I, 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 well, I know you're going to get into something later, which, by the way, I'm going to say right now, I don't, I don't think I, I disagree with you on this one. But that being said, no, I don't actually think that's what's happening. But anyway, oh, go carry on. So with this performance, um, you're right. Everything's there. Like it's chilling. It's, it's, it's so, it's so ice. Compared to and it, what's what's great is when you compare that to the previous scenes when he was was with with um, Janet, and he's this he's a lot more like he's trying to be. There's a warmth to him. There is a there's compassion with him, even though he is a psychotic you know sociopath you know crazy person. There is all that's there. At this point, it's all gone. He is a he is a good diff. He is who he is, and it's so. But it's it's such a great um, juxt- you know, juxtaposition from that previous scene we we got before, and seeing who he truly is, and he is calm. Like he always stays calm, even when Janet finds out, he stays calm. And I love the way he decided to go that route with this with this um, part of the character of this version, and I love it. I love that about the Jonathan Major's performance in this. And when I when I rewatched that version. Of, of Kang and and again we'll we'll get this eventually in the, in the post credit scenes but I, I gotta tell you all that it feels like we're witnessing the the birth of like a mega 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 movie star because this guy is already shown in two at, at this point two different performances completely different characters and they are so engaging to watch I cannot stop watching him and they're not like they're, it's not like over the top at least in my opinion. And again, like I'm not, I had, I have no idea who this guy was before. Like I, I don't, I can't watch everything. I, my life is crazy yeah, busy. See, I already knew, um, in terms of Jonathan majors and his career. I mean, the first time I saw him in something was the HBO series, Lovecraft country. I've heard he's great in that. He was great. outstanding in that. And unfortunately that show only went for one season. It really should have continued. It was great. And, and he was outstanding in it. So that was what I had seen him in when we found out that he was going to be involved in the MCU. But also that same year, he was in the Spike Lee film, uh, Defy of Bloods. He was great in that. And he's been, I mean, that was the interesting thing about him is, what movie was it? I think it was during the, it was when Black Panther Wakanda Forever was in theaters and went and watched the movie. And... I saw three trailers that day with Jonathan Majors in it. One was Devotion, which is like a pilot, you know, war movie type of thing, which I haven't seen. But then another one was Ant-Man and the Wasp, Quantumania. Another one was Creed 3 that he's going to be in next month. So he's going to be right back on an IMAX screen in Creed 3 next month, uh, battling Michael B. Jordan. But he is going to be everywhere. He's going to blow up. He has... I can't remember uh, what I think it's called. Magazine Dreams is a movie that he's in this year that just premiered at Sundance that I think Disney picked up and will be releasing later this year that has already has Oscar buzz for him potentially next year uh, for next year's award ceremony. And who knows what will happen? It's so early in in that process. But uh, to that point, yes, Jonathan Majors is 
kind of already everywhere and, and about to continue being everywhere yeah. and just increase his uh, his presence throughout. And rightfully so. I, I mean, the talent is immediately apparent and undeniable. I Just put a pin in this. And I want you to remind me to say this when we get to the post-credit scene. But I, there's something I want to speak about, about him and, and, and everything, specifically as an actor. When we get to that part, to say you wanted to talk about something specifically about him as an actor in the MCU, and then I'll I'll get to it. But anyway, to kind of wrap up my thoughts as initially with with obviously with, with Jonathan Majors, this is what makes the movie tick. And it's it's a bummer that they it probably in hindsight they probably should have put him in a lot sooner to make maybe people wouldn't be so harsh on the movie. Maybe it would have, I, I have no idea. Regardless, this is when the movie really escalates to it's fine to like okay I really like this a lot and he is incredible and I can it's. Yeah, it's it's broken record, but he's an amazing, amazing talent, and him as King is just like goddamn perfect. So, yep. Yeah, yeah, he's I love it. just outstanding in this. Um, and so Kang, as I said, needs Scott's help. So this is where Scott, you know, gets to one last "I love you, Peanut," and calling back to uh, nicknames and such from the first Ant Man movie. So uh, Scott yeah. has to dive down to shrink back down this multiversal engine core. So he dives into what we're eventually told is a probability storm. I love how when Scott gets there again, as I said, with Modoc, you know, oh my trying, God. Darren, do you read me? Darren, Modoc. Yes. Um, yes. <laughs> outstanding. That part. Both performances. Yeah, are great. Such yeah, a great bit great. from uh, from both of them. Yes. I love and that. I, I will say, though, um, the rest of the probability storm it's not not yeah. my favorite part of this movie. I it was fine on the first viewing, but in two subsequent viewings, I got to say this is the moment that starts to feel like a bit of a CG chore to get through. And um, you know, if if I go see it again, it's like that that might be the bathroom break spot. I, I don't know because um, it goes on for. I mean, it probably doesn't even go on for that long. It just kind of feels long. Um, with Scott seeing all these versions of himself, the what the hell, what the hell, what the hell, every choice, every that possibility was, yeah. of every choice he could make. And, you know, what kind of helps is, yes, Baskin Robbins, uh, Scott or Jack, air quotes, shows up. And so, you know, they're they're in conflict with one another until they all realize they want the same thing. They want to save Cassie. Boy, that was quite a uh, quite a revelation for all of them because Cassie is like only the like every third word that comes out of Scott's mouth in this movie. I don't know how they all settled on the fact that that's what yeah. Scott really cares about, but at least they did. They come to that conclusion. The one part of this moment that that brings it back and and lets it work for me is when Baskin Robbins Jack uh, comes back in the big ant pile. His Paul Rudd's go getter pal um, is just super cheesy and hilarious and that I'm I'm all about um, but even the tower of, of Scott Lang's does not work out so but luckily for Scott uh, hope Hank and Janet have all been on the way and hope is there in full wasp uniform to or or suit to uh, help Scott out and they are able to together or work together to shrink back down the multiversal core. So we'll talk about what happens next in a moment. But yeah, this probability storm sequence, a, a couple chuckles here and there, as I said, uh, the whole Modoc thing at the very beginning, the go-getter pal from Baskin Robbins, Scott, 
that stuff works for me, but some of this stuff is just, it's just a lot of, it's a lot of Ant-Mans and it's fine. It's cool to watch one time, but it, it doesn't really, it doesn't hold up as well, you know, watching it for the, the second and then third time. I also think it, it's, it's kind of a bummer because they don't, their relationship is really kind of an afterthought, but, um, but obviously, uh, Scott Lang and, oh, uh, hope we're going to get to, we're going to get to Scott and hope. Trust me. Yeah. I just, but that whole part where she saves him like that, that, you know, the whole thing is like, it's, it's, it's kind of, it just, it's lackluster at that point because of, of like you said, like they have to remember it's Cassie, which that felt like a reach. And then that whole thing of them coming together at the very end, it's just kind of like, it, it, this is definitely the part of quantum mania where it was like, it was, it went a little too far. And, but the problem is the payoff wasn't it just, again, it's clunky and it's just, it's just not well thought out. It seems like to me, it's almost like it'd be really crazy if we did this. And like, I like, and there is value there I think, and, and let me, don't get me wrong. Marvel t- has been taking a lot of swings lately. And I think they've had to, because they, they can't just retread on everything that can't came before them. Even though it'd be the easiest thing to do. That's asking for even quicker death. In my opinion, that being said, when you make a lot of swings, you are, you know, you're going to hit, you're going to miss and you're a power hitter. That's why the power hitters are have bat for lower average. And don't even get me started on, on, on base percentage. Cause that's, a, that's baseball that I can't, I can't get that far down, but regardless it's this was a, sw- a swing and a miss in my opinion it just was not executed on all levels besides it, it, cgi was fine but on everything else it just wasn't yeah, there's nothing wrong with working. the way it looked it was just it, it was just it, it was a yeah. lot of business and, and i wasn't feeling a whole lot during it and, and so exactly. I, I think that's Agreed. that's kind of the uh, that's kind of the issue of that's where the issue lies on that one for me but anyway so they accomplish the mission, right? They get Scott gets what Kang wants. But then Janet is there being like, hey, you can't. Oh, meanwhile, as all this is happening, I think this is also when um, as they're having this conversation and Kang is going to show up, Modoc also attacks Hank, which sets up, you know, the ant stuff. But um, uh, one quick note on that is like, it was fine because, you know, Hank and Darren had their history, but it almost felt too similar to the same bit they did with Scott realizing that it was Darren. And I know like that's the recurring thing is they're going to do it three times with Scott and Hank, with Scott and Cassie together and then Hank and then eventually Hope. But anyway, uh, yeah, it just it landed less effectively each time they they redid it. So it, it never got better than, than the first time they they did that bit. But anyway. This is where when we talk about not the multiversal engine core, but the emotional core of this movie, a little bit of an issue here. So we have Janet who's saying, look, we'll get Cassie back, but you cannot give that to him. You cannot give that to Kang. He cannot get out because the worst things are going to happen. And then Kang shows up and he doesn't need Scott to give him the multiversal engine core. Kang just takes it. And when... Uh, Ant-Man and the Wasp try to launch an offensive. They are literally just flicked away. And then Kang is able to capture Janet. He is, I wouldn't say happy to see her again, see his old friend, but he doesn't just immediately kill her either because again, that's his friend. And I think there's a part of Kang who still wants to explain himself to his friend and still wants to be able to be seen and understood by his friend, um, that he's 
maybe going to because i think for kang he doesn't necessarily care how everybody else judges him but there's a part of him that cares at least a little bit at what janet uh thinks of him and i think that's why he keeps janet alive like he doesn't necessarily need to keep her alive at that point because she's not going to help him any any he knows any chance she gets she's going to work against him but there's a part of him that just wants to maybe hold out some hope that he, no pun intended, that he and Janet can get back to uh, the way things were and Janet will finally see things his way. Um, and he's at least open to continuing their conversation slash debate about uh, all of these topics. But this is a, a bit of an issue here, though, in, in terms of... Well, I, I'll just go through it here and, and it's going to involve skipping ahead a bit. But because I, I, I think this moment encapsulates it, you know, Perfectly. And, and so in conjunction with everything that's come before. So as I mentioned, there's this and multiple times now building to this moment. So we've had this thing with Scott, right, where he his whole journey, his whole priority in this is I want to be a dad and that means I want to protect my kid and, and all of those things. OK, great. We understand that it's it's inherent with the whole parenting thing. Um, we're on board. Right. But he's also told by Cassie that he should still be caring about more stuff as he used to. He should still be trying to help people when he sees that they need help and he is able to help. And then also Janet kind of shows him that, I mean, he didn't get the whole backstory that everybody else did, but Janet has demonstrated and shown her willingness that, look, yes, we, we you'd want to and need to save your daughter, but it can't necessarily just be at any cost. Like we can find another way to save her, but you can't just allow Kang, you can't just give Kang what he wants, but Scott never makes a choice to not give Kang the multiversal engine core. It's taken from him. Scott's cheated. So Scott, at no point in this movie, the message that he gets over and over again is, yes, you should want to protect your daughter, but that can't be as important as that is. It can't be the only thing you care about. It doesn't mean that you turn a blind eye to everything else when you have the ability to make a difference in those other areas. And so one, when you insist on that point over and over again, one of two things has to happen. Either Scott needs to agree with that and make a choice to do something differently. So I want to protect Cassie, but for the greater good, I can't give Kang what he wants. So I have to resist Kang and find another way to save Cassie. But that's not the choice that Scott makes. The choice is made for him when Kang cheats him. So Scott never makes his own choice in that respect. The other thing he could do is he could offer a rebuttal of everybody says, I need to care about more stuff. I do care about more stuff, but I just can't care about that more or at the expense of my daughter. I've done that before. I've made the choices where I was trying to do something in pursuit of or in service to the greater good to help the most people that I could, but that ultimately cost me, but it also cost the people that I care most about and the person that I care most about in Cassie. And so I feel like when I'm making these choices, I'm, also, I'm, I'm not just making choices for myself, I'm making choices for her, and I can't make choices that put her in danger, even if she wants me to. Something like that has to happen at some point, but that's not really Scott's. If I think about that, if I assign those thoughts and those feelings to Scott's head, then it makes more sense and it's a little bit better. But 
you introduce an issue with Scott that you just kind of let go and you move on from and you don't really address in any meaningful way in the movie that really resonates with him or with us as an audience member. Like Scott doesn't leave this movie feeling any differently about these issues, either more firmly in the stance that he had or changed and getting back to the pursuit of the greater good, even beyond you know, protecting his daughter, but also the greater good. It, none of that is happening at the end of this. He just gets cheated and then he still has to go save his daughter, but he never makes a choice for any sort of greater good um, along with trying to save his daughter. He, he doesn't have that. So that's where I think for Scott, there's no, there's not really an arc there. And even if you want to say that there is, there is certainly no resolution to that arc by the end of this movie. And this is the moment that really makes it kind of impossible to have that resolution. Although I guess it could have happened later. Scott could have retrieved the multiversal engine or, or been reissued that choice of whether to help Kang or not um, and what that would mean for him or, or for Cassie. But that choice never comes. This is the moment where that choice is taken away from Scott and it never comes back up. So you're ultimately left with an, an arc that like some other things in this movie, unfortunately, this is maybe the biggest thing that feels incomplete to me in the movie. And it's not enough to make me completely dislike the movie because there's still so many other things that I do like about the movie. But for a movie called Ant-Man and the Wasp Quantumania, they nailed it with the Quantumania. They nailed it with the original Wasp. The Ant-Man part of this ends up being at least a little bit of a letdown because there's a lot of the stuff that I love about Paul Rudd playing Scott Lang and, and all of that stuff that's very charming, funny, entertaining, all of those things. But I, I don't get as much of the stuff that really had me caring and connecting with Scott Lang that elevated, especially the very first movie in this franchise and even his appearance in Avengers Endgame. We just don't get that in this movie. And this was a moment where it was possible, but they just skipped it. Yeah, I see your. I totally see what you're saying. I, I think for me, I, I don't, I don't, I don't hold it. At least for me, I, I just never really believed that much in the in the, in the motivations of Scott from the, the beginning. It, it all felt very just kind of, you know, with great power comes great responsibility. And his kid was reminding him of that, and he had to like kind of learn that. And then, I don't know. Like I, I feel like where what how. Again, I don't want to jump too far ahead, but I think like the third act with between him and, and Kang, it it works for me the, how it how it all ended. So I, I I just didn't really care that much as far as the themes for Scott in, in that sense. Um, again, for me, but I, yeah. at the same but time, you should care. I, I mean, that's my that's right, my issue. Right. Yeah, I don't exactly, think the movie yeah. gave you reasons to care, and it should have. No, and that's a great point. Like that's the thing is like I it never. It was so glossed over, and that's my problem with not focusing on them enough earlier. Was that I feel like because of that, you don't. There is no reason for them to follow up with it. Does that make sense? Like it's like because they were so kind of flimsy yeah. There's just many. moments where they they mistake lip service for focus, right? Because like exactly we yes, hear the exactly. dialogue over and over again. Cassie, 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 Cassie. I care about Cassie, but it's like, you know, I don't know. Showing your like there, there's more effective ways of doing it as um, as. This movie demonstrates on its own with how Janet felt about Hope. If Scott had a scene like that talking about Cassie, 
um, would have been it would have done so much more for uh, for this movie emotionally. And that's, that's where a great point. That's that, a great. Point, that's actually. where it would have elevated it for me. Again, yep, it, yep. I'm not talking about why I don't like the movie. I'm talking about why, even though I like the movie, I could have liked it a lot more. And, and, and why so, people might have issues with, yeah, with it. Yeah, exactly. Like and why exactly. maybe it's not resonating with people. And and I don't know. Look, I don't want to assign... I'm not speaking for everyone here. I'm speaking for me. Maybe of some of these uh, things that were flaws for me bothered you, our, our dear listener, or other audience members. Or maybe it didn't. I, I don't know. And maybe they have a completely different set of reasons of why they liked or, or didn't like this movie. That's all part of you know us being capable of having different opinions on movies. But anyway, yeah, the... That was just kind of a, a moment that encapsulated. It was kind of the the cherry on top of the Sunday of like here's how here's a, a big part of the movie that just didn't fully work for me and and I didn't think even got the opportunity to be fleshed out and and fully uh, fully work for me. But anyway, let's cut to ant science. So we saw mm-hmm. Hank Pym being dispatched by Modoc, and the ants uh, are, are back with him. And now, as all no pun intended, hope seems lost. We have Hank telling Scott and Hope, here's how we're going to battle. Turns out these ants, they, in this whole quantum realm process, lived thousands, experienced thousands of years in a single day, built their society, evolved their technology, and all of those things. As Hank said, he told us they were smart. And then uh, Hank just throws Scott's book back at him, talking about how there's always room to grow and Scott is uh, saying, you read my book, every goddamn word as. <laughs> <laughs> that as, was great. Yeah, was great. Uh, it was awesome. And now it's uh, it's time to go get Cassie. So I this stuff I, I liked. And look, I'm I'm all about the the ant army. I I thought that part Dude, was great. So love yeah. the ant army. Yeah, no, love no it. issues for me there. Yeah, the ant army was a great callback. And because I was thinking, how are they going to defeat Kang? And then when the ants, when he brought the ants in, I went, oh, okay, okay. And, <laughs> okay. So, okay. and so I was like, all right, all right. I get that. That's so <laughs> oh, funny. Uh, uh, yeah, I, no, the, the ant stuff was, was great. Yeah. So yeah, anyway, moving on. But yeah, I love the ants. They're yeah. great. So then we get uh, Kang and Janet and a credit to this movie to give us this conversation, right? So where we get to talk about it, right? They didn't necessarily get to spend that much time talking about it. They Kang was just hoping Janet would ignore it. She couldn't, and so then she had to stop Kang. By the way, him, like, getting his suit and going into full Kang mode, and, like, that's one thing we did glance over in terms of, Ugh. gloss over in terms of his levels. When he, like, lost his mind when Janet was trying to get away with the multiversal engine core and did go into, like, full supervillain mode, that was awesome. And, you know, oh, yeah. it, it showed us uh, a little glimpse of, of what was to come. But things are calm here. We're, we're calm, chilling Kang. And, you know, it's funny. I, I describe Kang as chilling, and he is. But especially in a scene like this, Kang is also weirdly comforting because he is so calm. And in so mm-hmm. many ways, he's yeah. he's speaking. He's not mean about it. Like, <laughs> he wants to kill everybody. But, you know, he's nice about it. So, like, he does mm-hmm. just come across as, like, because it is that, especially in a scene with Janet, because there is that part of him that genuinely likes and cares about her and respects her and all of that. And and so I think that in this scene, when he's kind of explaining all of this to her and going through it, I think that's part of where, when I say comforting, it's almost like 
it goes back to what you mentioned before about that there's that disappointment, there's that heartbreak of knowing that this is not going to end well when you see them being friends and genuinely connecting. You're like, oh, this is nice. It would be great if this could continue. Boy, is it sad that it can't. That's kind of what this goes back to. Like you want to you want to be able to see the story continue in this direction. You know it can't, and you don't really want that. You want to see Kang be a, a big bad. But you kind of, there is that part of you, certainly that part of me that's like, man, I, I really wish they could just go back to being friends and, and, and Kang could just not try to kill everyone uh, and it would all work out. But um, but anyway, yeah, it's chilling and comforting in its own weird way at the same time. But we get one of my favorite lines in this sequence where Janet is saying like, you're gonna, if you're taking out entire timelines, like you're murdering trillions. And Kang says... And I quote, I wish that mattered. Oof. I love that line so much. It is tied for first as my favorite Kang line in the movie. The other one is when he just yells, I am Kang. Uh, so there are <laughs> so two first place votes for, for, line of, for Kang line of the movie. But I wish that mattered. And here's why I like it so much. Well, it's just, it's ice cold. So there is that part of it. But... When he says, I wish that mattered, there's a part of him that probably does wish that it mattered, but let's also remember that in the aggregate, these trillions of lives don't matter to Kang. But this one life, Janet Van Dyne, does matter to Kang. And so that's why he even says, which is like, what timelines are you going to eliminate and all this stuff? He just says, not yours. And so that's part of the deal and part of the promise and what it would have been if Janet had just ignored what she knew, ignored what she saw, was Kang did care enough that he would build his mission around Janet and her life, that she he would have made sure, because he cares about this one person, here is one life and then her family, one set of lives, that does matter to Kang because Janet matters to Kang. So he would have made, in all of his plans and everything that he needs to accomplish as he quote unquote wins, he was going to carve out this little space for this one life that mattered to him. And so it, it shows that Kang is capable of this connection and all of this stuff, but he, except for Janet, where he was kind of forced to because he could not just continue on in his mission, he had to stop down for a bit and then a connection was formed. But if not for that, then the, then the rest of the rules apply for Kang, where their lives don't mean anything compared to what Kang feels he has to accomplish. And so when he's talking about he's not a monster, he does what conquerors do. And they, he burns down, they burn down the broken world and build a new one. That's what Kang thinks he's doing. As he sees what's happening with the multiverse, all of his variants, they are creating these timelines that crash into each other. These incursions, as we heard about in Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness, editors note, these universes, these timelines colliding into one another, destroying them, that this is all happening, that the multiverse is dying, So, Kang, according to Kang. So this is what he feels he's doing by destroying these timelines, which sounds a lot like he who remains. And when he even describes his mission, he forms that little time circle that we saw around the Citadel of Time at the end of Loki. So as Paul and I were talking off air, when I first saw that circle, I was like, is this the version of Kang or the variant? Excuse me. God, I suck. Uh, is this the variant of Kang who becomes he who remains? And I don't actually think that's true um, because they are 
very different personality wise. And I guess you could say he who remains is this version of Kang an eternity later having gone mad. That's possible because he even talks about like it's possible. Well, he does talk about when you can see all of time, you can't help but want to skip to the end. Where does he who remains live? The end. The end. Yeah. So uh, I'm not sure if he is supposed to be the same or supposed to become because even that version of he who remains who died in the Loki season finale said, see you soon. But was he talking literally himself (laughs) like in the timeline, still getting back to that same spot that he was when he died? Or because he even acts like that whole scene in in Loki has played out before with Loki and Sylvie. So that's where I'm curious. There was a second Mm. there where I was like, is he the guy who becomes he who remains? And I don't know if he's really the guy who specifically like that was the one where where it not for what happens to him in this movie. He would have become he who remains. I'm not sure because even that guy was called a conqueror. Um, So. I'm I'm not sure if he would have been the exact same variant or he's another doesn't really matter. He's also if if he's not that then he's still another variant who was totally capable of becoming of winning and becoming the he who remains at the end of the timeline. So I'm not really sure which Kang is which and if we're even supposed to track which variants are actually aligned and and the same person versus which ones aren't. I think that math is going to get way too complicated as we go on and and meet so many more Kangs as we saw in the mid credit scene as we will see as all this unfolds in the MCU. But there is uh, there is a little bit of a similar mission. And, And that's where it did kind of echo back to the Loki finale where he gave the characters a choice like you can let me out because and you need to let me out because if you don't just like with the Loki finale, you can leave me alone, let me do what I want to do and I will build a life for you that will be everything you wanted and you'll be great um, and you'll be happy. So just forget what you know and just let me give you a place to go and be happy like he's offering Janet and like he's was kind of offering Scott, but more specifically Janet but let me continue my work because if I don't, then whatever you think I'm doing that's bad, something way worse is going to happen. So it is he's even presenting the characters with a very similar choice to the ones that He Who Remains did at the end, which makes sense to me because that's that's the logic he has to use in order to convince people, although he's not great at it. He's not great at convincing people to just let him have his way. Um, but in any event, um, regardless of that, part of it all and and you know the the mind-breaking stuff of of Kang variants and keeping track of who's who and who's what I just I, I thought this scene was great and as I said there there's a part of Kang who wants to just be done with this and move on with his mission and but now he's not just going to escape by himself he wants to take his entire empire with him but he can't just move on from this he doesn't have to have this con- that's what's important to me is that he doesn't have to have this conversation with Janet he wants to um, and that is that that little part that that's humanizing Kang, even as we're starting to see things get worse and worse with him. Yeah, there's there's a lot here that the he who remains character I I took as it's just a variant of, of you know another King variant, but obviously like you said like he can't, he kind of saw everything towards the end. He's just one of the many fat yeah. you know he's the one keeping everything together. But he also is almost. I almost. They're in the. the they're they're the elite Kang variants, the ones who are capable yeah. of winning. Yeah, exactly. And the way I took it as is like almost like he's the best of all of them to win because he's not. He's he's crazy, 
but he's not completely, you know, conquering necessarily. He's just, he's almost, he's, he's maintaining in a very questionable way. Right. And I feel like in the episode when I rewatched it, you definitely get the sense that he like is, you know, he can't keep it together. He's holding things by a thread and that what he's doing, what isn't necessarily the wrong, it's a wrong approach, but it's also like he's, he's doing the best he can because you see these different multiverses, you know, it was great to actually rewatch this episode, to be honest. It, it's a, it's, it's such a good episode anyway, but it also really helps inform of where things are going because there is a problem with so many multiverses going on of someone like Kang ex existing and having ruler over all these things and what that means and everything. Right. And so with that, the he who remains is almost like keeping all the other Kings at bay. And with him dying, it then reveals like it's dirt. Like he says, there's worse than me coming. Like he knows, like I can win. I've won in this, at this point, but I can't keep, I can't keep it together because for whatever reason, the multiverses keep needing to, you know, generate and you know, the whole pruning idea. Like there's just really a lot of fascinating things with this and that Loki show. I, I just kind of took for granted. And now with Kang and all this, what we're getting, it's like, okay, the, the, the re what's going on is coming up. Um, what they're, what, what, what potentially is going to be happening when you bring in multiverse of madness too, Sean, like in that whole, you know, the whole Illuminati scene, it's like, oh, okay. Like, there's there's more going on here, and I think and I think Kang, like he says, winning because he sees, I think, an opportunity to hold these multiverses together in a way of of, of ruling over them. Like, right? Like, what does that mean exactly? And I, I think like the whole idea of winning against himself is is fascinating. And so, yeah, you see all that here. And like, I, I love the fact that we see that this this Kang version is like, I can give you what you want. Because I, you know, I can I can rule all over all this and give you anything you want and what that is. I'm curious, you know, where, why does King want? Why does King want to control these different multiverses? And I think we're going to get that obviously in King Dynasty, because it's going to be a, hopefully an emotional reason. Because I because the one I'll, I'll put a pin in that too. So uh, pin in that. But yeah, I love the the correlation with He Who Remains. Because they are the same person, they just go about it a little bit differently and and everything, right? So, seeing that in this with the Loki show is was awesome. Well, I may not be a real MCU fan, but I'm definitely a real podcaster because I will use this opportunity to uh, take that cue from you and and point out that don't worry, there's a lot of talk about the future for Kang that we are saving for another yes. episode. So. Woo. There's That's a lot a coming out of this. We, we're we already yeah. two hours in. We have a lot more ground to cover to finish up this movie. But we already yeah. knew we could not adequately cover the future no. of Kang or the past, no. present, all of future, all of it of Kang all in of just it, no. this show. So we will have a lot more to talk about very soon here on MCU Fan Show. But back to the movie. So as all of this is happening, Cassie goes and frees Gentura, and then they free more prisoners and... Gentura is there holding off Kang's army, so Cassie's the one who has to get the message out just to inspire people. Hey, Kang's not invincible. He knows he can't take us all at once. He probably can, but or certainly thinks he can, but hey, you got to send out the inspiring message and make people believe they can win. And so this really kicks off the quantum mania, quantum war final battle sequence that I thought this was just outstanding. I, I thought this was totally as 
big and bombastic and uh, spectacular, bonkers. It was just as weird and crazy and epic as it deserved to be in this quantum mania. And you're going to call this movie quantum mania. Here it is. And so I I thought this whole thing was great. And, And the way that they had all the different pieces to it. So you had Scott being the biggest version of Giant Man ever. Not really. I mean, in full context, he was in the quantum realm, so he's still very small. But to scale relative to his environment, he was massive. And him leading the charge, Hope also being there, the Wasp on his shoulder, and then taking off to help battle some of the ships. But then just the army that's building. Also, we get this Cassie versus Modoc showdown. That was really great. And of course, I'll have more to say about that in a moment. But even just seeing this army with Jentura and Quaz and Zolom and Veb and everybody, even Broccoli Guy is is running around there doing damage. And, and Veb finally gets holes in this sequence. And I also like the little bridge bit with Quaz, the 18147 for the bridge code. All of that stuff was great. It had these great comedic bits to it, but also it just looked great. I mean, the living ships, you know, like your buildings are alive, yours are dead, you know, bringing that back from earlier on in the movie. All of that stuff I thought looked great. And this is where the VFX, I thought, shined the brightest in, in this movie. Like all of this sequence, I thought looked great. So some of the scenes that were the VFX wasn't weren't as convincing or seamless as they were in the rest of the film were usually the smaller scenes. So when it came to like the big action set pieces, it really delivered. But particularly in this final battle, I mean, saving the best for last from a VFX standpoint um, just looked great. And then you know, adding to the comedic bits. I mean, the showdown between Cassie and Modoc, I thought was really great. I mean, and it's gotten a big cheer all three times I saw the movie when Cassie sizes up and then just lands that punch on Modoc. And that even does the little puny god Hulk smashing Loki bit from the Avengers as she just like grabs him and just flings him back and forth. All that was great. Summing it up with their conversation of just telling Darren to stop being this, whatever this is, and he wants to be told what to be. Well, just don't, I don't know, just don't be a dick. It's too late. I'm such a dick. It's never too late to stop being a dick. Great message from Cassie Lang uh, for everyone to take away from the movie. I, I thought that whole piece was outstanding and everything about this final battle, and we haven't even gotten to like the full intense moments of the final battle. This is just the more spectacular portion of it. I thought this was just, uh, it was just so good, so well done. And, and as I said, I mean, it, what makes it a great action sequence are the layers that they add to it and the way they pair off certain characters in it, give these different story points to cross cut back and forth to. All of that was just on point in this sequence. And then when we actually get to Kang Unleashed, so we've seen glimpses of it and like the little highlight reel of the bad stuff that Kang does and, and briefly showing his powers unleashed again in the falling out with Janet. Uh, falling out, that's one way of putting it. And then when you get to, uh, when Kang jumps into this battle, or rather floats down majestically <laughs> into this battle. So we've talked about Kang being chilling, uh, intimidating, all of these things. But when Kang just goes full Kang and he is violent and brutal and intense and just unleashing hell with that suit, he looks amazing as he's doing these devastating things. But when you talk about trying to sell the uh, the power of a villain and just how imposing this figure is. I think they had already done a pretty effective job of that with everything they had done up until that point in this movie, but Kang Unleashed was, was really a sight to see. 
Yeah, the third act was fantastic. I, I love the third act a lot. And I think that for me, seeing Cassie as, I guess you, there, there's two names you could go by for a superhero names, Stinger or Stature. I'm personally partial to Stature. I just like the name a lot, but I digress. Um, I'm surprised I, they didn't even at least like have her choose a name by the end of the movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which, yeah, well, if we have time. Give we, her a superhero I, name. Yeah, if you know what, I'll, I'll save it for the next next week's episode. I got a lot. I got a lot. Not a lot to talk about with the cat. Not a lot, but I have some stuff to talk about. Cassie, not bad. Just some stuff. Um, I, I love the third act. I thought the third act was really good. Like you said, like it never, it never, never felt like the, it, the CGI was like bad by any levels. Like it felt very. It just looked really unique and interesting. Um, I like the third act a lot. The third act is really really good in this movie. I mean, obviously we have some critiques of that that second half. Or the you know the second act and the first act's not super strong. That third act it, it does end pretty well, I think. And I think Kang is a big reason for it. And I think that Kang just really seeing King unleash and see how powerful he is, why he rules over this these people, and why he's a threat, and why he needs to be put down, um, you know, and not get back to wherever he wants to go. And it was just to see that kind of unleashed, and you know, knowing how he's going to take on you know, how he's going to be defeated. I was very much, you know, with the ants, I'm like, okay, how's this going to work? It was very interesting to see it all kind of play out and see him, uh, just destroy people. So yeah, Jonathan Majors is King, man. Just anytime he's on screen, just, it just, I just big smile on my face. Love, 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 yeah. love seeing King in action. Yeah. His whole thing. Uh, you thought you could win. I'm Kang that shout. And as I said, tied yeah. for my favorite Kang line in the movie, just so good. And, and that's what I'm talking about with Jonathan Majors as an actor here and his performance. Like, it's just, to be able to make it work on those levels, because that when you dial it up to eleven like that, or let's call that like a fifteen or a twenty, mm-hmm. that can come across as just totally over the top and, and ridiculous. And maybe for some it was, but for me, it just it it felt like everything about this guy was just boiling over in that moment. Like it's just that frustration because that's all him, right? There is the part of him that genuinely thinks he he cares about things and cares about people and cares about his mission. Um, but then there is also the conqueror. There is the guy who totally has his ego tied to his ability to win and his feeling that no one can stop him. No one can beat him. And it's almost insulting when someone actually thinks they can beat him. And, and normally he can be calm and, and collected and chilling about it. But sometimes he's just got to be really, really raw and intense with it. And that was uh, it was that moment where it just boils over. I think in this he's just tired of it. Like he's tried to be patient and make deals with people and all of this stuff, but it's just not working. And he's just tired of it. He this none of, as he points out, none of this is new for him. He's put down countless rebellions. He's killed countless Avengers. He's been through all of this, and it's just really, really annoying and frustrated for these pesky ants to actually try and make him do this again. So when he even says like, I'm Kang, like you talk to ants and then the ants show up and look, the ants making a difference in this battle. I loved it because as I was talking about earlier in the show, I, I like that you go to the core mythology and we think about how much the ants played into the, the heist plans of the very first movie. Ants are part of this as they should be Ant-Man. So to have them be part of this final battle, I thought was great. And then also Darren uh, comes in because it's not just the ants. Darren is also part of it because Kang has his force field and it's mostly holding up. But then Darren comes in in the clutch with the save. 
Um, and that's where the, the moment earlier in the film, do not speak when I'm speaking, it's, sure, Kang saved Darren. Kang turned him into this mechanized organism designed only for killing, Modok or Modofk, whatever you, whatever you choose. But really, Kang is not... Uh, Darren didn't get to be Kang's friend like Janet got to be Kang's friend. There's no mutual like or respect or anything like that uh for uh, certainly there's maybe darren liking kang but none of that affection was ever reciprocated in any way shape or form so as he decides that he's not going to be a dick uh this is how he shows it and he makes this difference at least for a little while that breaks the force field so the ants just sweep kang away but this has uh taken quite a toll on Darren, where he's asked by Scott if he's okay, and he says probably not, as he's spitting up whatever, and as uh, everybody's looking at me, he finally now we get the the Darren bit again uh, as he sees Hope and notice that she changed her hair for the what third consecutive film, uh, which is fine, uh, and so then we get, uh, and when we talk about big laughs in the movie, here's Modoc getting another one, like Scott you were always like a brother to me and then like the hand on his face and then just like slowly <laughs> working down Scott's chest, just so awkward and funny. And then at least I died an Avenger and Scott like, yeah, sure you're in. And then the big hero music as he, as he goes out. And uh, in terms of like the visual language of movies, this is a death because we see him die. Even his little heart monitor at the front, like flat lines. So Yes, uh, Modoc has is one and done in the MCU, but Darren was also dead after the first Ant Man movie, and then he wasn't. So um, Modoc can always come back at some point in the MCU. But if this is it for Modoc, I'm fine with it because I, I like the showing that Modoc had in this movie, and the the exit was was pretty great and and really hilarious. Yeah, the, the, I don't think Modoc's dead, but like I said, you don't have to use him, but he's he always have him as as like a in your back pocket if yeah. you need. Well, he's need dead, but something. death isn't forever. So. Well, right. Well, he's dead for that. Maybe he just yeah. But, I mean, he's a mechanized organism, so you just I don't know, turn him back on. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So I'm not, I'm not, I'm not convinced he's dead. But if he if he was for sure dead, then that's that that's fine too. I'm not, I I, 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 I kind of want to see him come back and see what he tries to I do agree. with that with that Avengers membership because an Avenger told him he's in. So yeah, I, I agree, but I I would not be shocked to be showed up maybe in Captain America somewhere. Would not be shocked. He'll show up in another season of She-Hulk suing for Avengers membership and membership privileges. Ooh, oh, 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 no, now that if that wasn't so expensive. Yeah. Scott said like I that. was in. <laughs> like yes. where where's that's my good. membership card? That's perfect. So anyway, uh, then so Kang appears to be defeated and Janet has worked out a way to get everybody back home. And so they're all about to make their exit. Everybody goes through Janet, Hank, Hope, and then it's only Cassie and Scott left. Then Scott quickly shoves Cassie through the portal because Kang is back and then we get a fight. So now the suit is busted. So it's just Kang the man or whatever he is versus Scott Lang. And uh, turns out he doesn't need a suit. Kang can fight and he beats the crap out of Scott Lang. Mm -hmm. We haven't seen our heroes take beatings quite. Uh, I mean, we've seen him get hurt and you know, some of them have died. Um, but this, the brutality of this, like just 
the strikes to the face, the the blood out of the nose and the mouth. I mean, Scott is really taking a, a beating in this. And here's a just a whole other way that Kang gets to be powerful and intimidating and just absolutely brutal. And that whole thing of, you know, just because you thought you could win, like you could have seen your daughter, you could have had everything that you say you wanted, but you had to, uh, but you thought you could win. And so here you go. Although, as I said, um, here I am harping on this again. Scott never really made a choice to, you know, not go along with what Kang said. <laughs> he he fought Kang not because he wanted to prevent Kang from getting out, because Kang, well, partially that, but also because they had a deal and, and Kang broke it. So Scott wasn't getting what he wanted in exchange for Kang getting what he wanted. Anyway, so this whole fight sequence I, I thought was really good. And, and look, another moment, uh, performance moment that I really liked is during this sequence, Scott, I mean, he he gets some shots in on Kang, but none of them really register the way Kang's yeah. strikes are, are landing on Scott. But there's one where he, Scott lands like a clean punch to the face and like he gave it his all, like whatever he had left and he just put everything into it and he does connect. But then Kang gives this look at him like, you poor pitiful man, like you just gave me everything you had and I barely felt it and now I'm just going to end you. Uh, but he doesn't get to because as things are looking bad, uh, uh, Scott messes with the multiversal engine core, which is going to close the portal. So Kang makes a run for it. But then Hope comes back through and she fires upon Kang with her wasp sings. And then Scott gives him one last punch for good measure, which knocks him into the destabilized multiversal engine core because it was being sized up and down with the little blue and red dis disc simultaneously. Quantum science, whatever. And then... Kang is sucked into it and it explodes. So this version of Kang meets his end, or so we're told. Uh, and so visually and later after the fact, we're told that this version of Kang is now dead. So here's the moment that I was talking about, Paul, in terms of like the relationship, the relationship mm. between Scott and Hope. And this is where this moment kind of comes to a head. Yeah. Is we get this big embrace between Scott and Hope, and he tells her, like, don't let, you know, you came back for me, like, amazed that she would come back for him. I'm like, why? <laughs> you guys are supposed to be together, but I'm also yeah. like, the movie, but you know what? It's fair, because the movie doesn't do a good job of really paying attention to their relationship. It's like, okay, great, you showed us that they have date night, but we don't even get, like, is there a, before this moment, is there a, a conversation between Scott and Hope in this movie that's just them? Not really. I mean, like, I guess, like, really Cassie, quickly, the probability of. storm and, you know, but even after that, like, Janet's right there. So, like, there's no, like, intimacy in this relationship, like, at least that, that we're being shown. Like, it's so... We have to assume it. Yeah, it's like, it's like we're, but you know they're together from the other movies. It's like, I don't... Yeah, fine, but, like, first off... They only just get together at the end of the first movie, and Ant-Man and the Wasp doesn't do the best job of handling their relationship. Yep. So, yep, yep, yep. I, I mean, uh, the best moment in their relationship might be during the final battle in Endgame where they, like, look at each other. <laughs> like, there's just not... Wow. I, I mean, these movies have not done a, a great job with hope, and and I, I gave them a pass and still do in, in the first movie, but at the same time, like, I... Uh, I, I'm not going to rehash all of my criticisms of Ant-Man and the Wasp, but I, I didn't really feel like, and it's not, I'm not hanging this on Evangeline Lilly or the Wasp as a character. 
I don't think that movie, that story script, and I don't know, I'm not assigning blame to anyone, screenwriters or director or anybody, Peyton Reed. It's all a collaborative effort. And same thing with the flaws in this one. I don't hold this against any one person. This is a collaborative effort. So they get credit, they share credit for what's good about this and share credit, blame, whatever you want to call it for the things that that are shortcomings. But I think the Ant-Man and the Wasp didn't really do right by that character, by the second character in that title. And they still didn't hear. I mean, again, if I if I think of the Wasp in the title as the original Michelle Pfeiffer Wasp, fine. But that's not really what they mean by it when they call it yeah. Ant-Man and the Wasp Quantumania. Even the Twitter emoji is the Evangeline Lilly Wasp, not Michelle Pfeiffer. So that's where I just... It felt it just rang hollow because like, yeah, I know they're together, but give me something that makes me feel the connection between these characters emotionally before the end of the movie. Like because otherwise, Scott, if if I'm supposed to assume that the relationship is is as great as you're acting like it is now and as meaningful as you say it is now. Scott really shouldn't be surprised that Hope came back for him because, yeah, I mean, if their relationship is that great, she probably would. And she is a superhero. Um, or you could just say, well, in general, he's surprised because, wow, what a sacrifice. And I wasn't prepared to do that for anybody except Cassie. So maybe I am a little surprised by this. Fine, I guess. Um, but just that moment of like this tender moment of don't ever let go and, and whatever. Well, I've heard Scott talk all movie long about how much he wants to keep uh, spending time with Cassie, not so much about how much he wants to keep spending time with Hope. Um, I mean, I can assume that he does because they're together, but I'd rather not assume. I'd rather have it be part of the story, and you don't have to do a whole lot to make that happen. Um, very, very small scenes, lines of dialogue, whatever you want to do. A conversation between the two characters before this uh, would be very, very helpful. So that moment, like, just, it, it's not as emotional as it, you know, my emotional response to it is not what it should have been. It's not what that moment... I feel like it's not the response that I feel like that moment is designed to kind of provoke within me because they just haven't done the work to get us there. So just assuming that at the end and, and acting like it's, oh, it's isn't it amazing to see Scott and Hope reunited um, in, in this way? It, it doesn't, it only rings true in, in the most superficial, general sense of relationships, not about, not in any way that this specific story has earned. Yeah, I I definitely feel that way too, and and I, I their relationship has been was definitely another weak point. It felt clunk, not clunky. It just felt just it felt like it wasn't there. Yeah, it, it felt yeah, absent. Non-existent. It was absent, and it was I, it, honestly, I'll be honest, Sean. I almost forgot it was even called Ant Man and the Wasp. I thought it was just called Ant Man Quantum Mania, and so um, for a longest time. So the fact that like they really try to still put her name on this and then have that. It's just like, I don't know about that. I don't know. I just listen. Like we, I I don't want to harp on it too much either because I think you said everything that we need to say about it. I agree. Like it's just not, it just wasn't the best aspect of it. This movie's still enjoyable. It's just, but these, this was definitely, they Marvel needs to look at how they develop in these sequels, at least now, there's, it's been a, it's been not even sequels just in general they need to look about how they're developing their relationships and things with people and maybe spend a little more time like on them uh whether it be writing i don't know or just or whatever they need to do they need to put some a little more tlc in these kind of scenes ex- establishing these, these these thematic moments or these emotional moments and, and the the pay that way we have a more of a payoff i think for these smaller moments if you will so 
um, if they want to keep having success in the general audience. So I definitely feel like this was a, a byproduct of maybe a general audience not loving the a movie because this feels very just kind of stiff and, again, it's kind of not earned and people just don't really d- didn't really connect to it. Yeah, I, I mean, I think these emotional moments are important. And so and it's it's actually kind of weird for me, honestly, to like the movie this much when I am obviously I, seeing like, these yeah. big emotional moments yeah. where these are normally the payoffs that really are the main reasons why I, I like these movies. And so for it to fall short in these ways and for me to still be entertained by it, that's that's kind of rare, honestly. <laughs> but it still worked. Because, But I think it's because I found it in other places. So where I didn't get um, the emotional resonance or whatever, where I didn't get that in... I mean, so, to some extent, yeah, it was there with Scott, but not in the way that it should have been. And where I didn't get it with Hope, I got it with Kang and I got it with Janet. So that's kind of what made it is like that stuff that I that, you know, the more important stuff or whatever, what I deem to be more important within these stories. It was there just in different characters and their stories, as as opposed to the two characters who have their name in the title, Ant-Man and the Wasp. I mean, I, I was just thinking about that point you made earlier in the show where you talked about maybe too many people went to the quantum mania and you know, I'm fine with everybody who went down there, but if hope was left behind and she was the one like working behind the scenes to try and get everybody home from the earth side of things. And she was never there in the quantum realm. Like um, it's the same movie. It, it is like, because if you take the wasp out of the quantum realm sequences, it's basically the same movie. I know Scott then has to do it himself to shrink back down the multiversal engine core. Fine. But a lot of the other stuff remains relatively unchanged because Hope really didn't move things forward or, or really change the game. She just didn't have the effect on the story that she should have. And, and I think that's that has been a struggle with this franchise. And, and I was hoping that they, no pun intended, that they would fix that this time around. They didn't. But hey, they they fixed other things. So they gave Janet Van Dyne a great role in this one, which they didn't do the last time around. And, and obviously Kang as an antagonist um, was just unbelievable. And, and by far and away, with all due respect to our, our dear friend, no longer a dick, Darren. Um, yeah, Kang is by far and away the best antagonist that this franchise, uh, this specific franchise within the greater MCU franchise um, has seen. So anyway, they save the day and they do get to go home. They They revel in the victory for a moment and then... Uh, Cassie is able to get him home from the other side. Remember, doors open from both sides. And now we cut to Scott. His life doesn't make sense, but he's embracing that now. And now he's, again, buddy, even if he now has to pay 12 bucks for coffee as Bugman instead of Spider-Man. Dale has come out of cake-making retirement to make a horrific cake for Cassie's, not really her birthday, but Scott missed a few, so he's making up ground. Scott is wondering, though, before he gets to the restaurant and then while he's there, wait a minute. This guy really is dead, right? Scott really did win, didn't he? But even if he did and that Kang really is gone, didn't he say it was going to be worse and more people were going to die if he didn't get out? So Scott is panicking and wondering if he actually killed everyone in the process of this story. And he tries to put it out of his mind and just think about it and just say, no, that that can't possibly be it. Everything's fine. And then he's still thinking about it as he takes a bite of that horrific ice cream cake. And that is the end of our movie until we get to our mid credit scene. So 
this ending was um this was it was interesting i mean i guess we should talk a little bit about what happened with kang not so much future gazing and, and speculating about it but yeah you know when we talked about how this movie would end I, I think we were both in agreement on the sense that it couldn't end in a way that felt like a full and complete victory because kang was still around and i I would say Scott got to feel a little more victorious than I thought he was going to in this movie. I, I thought that I didn't expect um, a full-on defeat of a Kang as this appears to be, but at the same time, it made it very clear of just how much is still out there. And the fact that Scott could win, I, I guess even though it looked more like a victory than I thought it would, it didn't feel any more like a victory than I thought it would because Scott doesn't really feel victorious at the end of this. Like he is having this panic of, oh crap, like whatever I thought I won, I think I might've just made the situation worse, which by the way, if Scott really feels that way, he better start talking to the other Avengers and start getting everybody on the line and saying, um, guys, like here's what I just went through in the quantum realm. And by the way, heads up, it might get even worse. So hopefully he's sharing information uh, at this point. But for Scott to move in, in this or to have this panic at the end, um, and that's also a very different way for this movie to end. I mean, because I, I think Marvel movies typically err on the side of resolution with threats still out there, but the characters very much feeling like there's a resolution. Not always, but more often than not, I think that's been the case in the MCU. Um, but this is a case where that that's just definitely not it for for Scott. Like he he's ending this movie totally panicked about what the future uh, what the future holds, and for good reason because yeah, Kangs are still out there, and and that means a, a lot of trouble for Scott and and the rest of his fellow Avengers. I th- I actually really liked the the ending in a sense to where it was not conventional, and also like I like the fact that he's thinking about it like oh wait did i screw things up like i like the fact that he doesn't have like a a support system of to him to lean on in a sense to where like wait like did i defeat this guy because no one no one really know and how they find it like you know what i mean how would you find the, the council of kings you know or whatever right. right like so there is this sense of like what do i do and i like that it it felt not relatable, but it felt kind of like, you know, what a real person would go through if they had superheroes, you know, or they were in a fighting a supervillain and something like that happened. Like, because I would happen to be, I'd be like thinking like, did I really kill this person? Did I do the right thing? Like, I like that idea that he struggled with it. The only thing I would have wished they would have done differently is maybe say, you know, why don't we have him like, this is a little more of a bummer to leave on. And maybe that's why they didn't want to do it like this, but I would emphasize more of him like panicking and kind of end on that, the uh, ominous, like, you know, did he, you know, that whole thing, the setup, the, the, the the credit scenes here a little bit. So that's what I would have done a little bit more, less funny. But other than that, I actually liked that where they took it. I thought it was interesting. So I I liked, for the most part, I liked this ending. Me too. Now let's get into those mid and post credit scenes. So, I texted you after I saw the movie, told you you were going to lose your mind, and there was plenty of stuff in the movie. I mean, Jonathan Major's entire performance as Kang that uh, I was referring to in that, but I was also pointing very directly at, and I wasn't telling you where, because uh, I didn't want you to, I didn't want to create any expectation <laughs> any more than I already did, but yeah, this mid credit scene, I loved it, and I knew you were going to love it, and so what happens? Well, 
the exiled one is dead. And who's there? Well, the people who exiled him. Other variants of Kang. And in this sequence, well, at the very end, we see a stadium full of Kangs. But the three that we mainly focus on here are Immortus, Ramatut, and that's the one who looks more like the Egyptian pharaoh, Kang's original appearance. And then the guy who's all up in, in the metal, like it's... It's almost like Scarlet Centurion, but there's no red. So he's like Silver Centurion, maybe, in the MCU, which is fine. Change the color scheme, whatever. Um, Maybe the the Scarlet would have just been too Iron Man-esque, which it kind of does look like in the comic books, but maybe for the MCU, they wanted a a bit more visual separation. I'm fine with Mm -hmm. it. But seeing those three variants of Kang and then also showing this stadium or coliseum arena full of all these other kangs and they're all losing their minds like it was just that was uh that was something and that was just when you think the mcu can't get any nuttier they're like no 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 no. we're we're gonna have a council of kangs and then some but also what immortus was saying there like when like this is a problem for the kang so what's the inciting incident for the Kang dynasty slash the secret wars. And there are a lot of things that have already happened that you could say would qualify, but all these other variants of Kang have mostly, they they probably haven't been paying. I mean, they've all probably had their turns killing different Avengers, but it seems like they weren't overly concerned with that perhaps until now, because now as Immortus is, is pointing out like, well, they've, successfully killed the exiled one which they couldn't even kill the exiled one they just had to sabotage sabotage his ship to exile him they couldn't kill him um because you would think if they could have they probably would have exactly that's why i don't think he's really dead and so well he, he but he may still be but the point uh the point here for me is that this is what now draws their attention to our mcu earth 616 and the heroes that inhabit it because as they're as immortus is saying like they're beginning to touch the multiverse as we've been seeing now in, in the MCU in recent projects. So this kind of being the thing that gets the council of Kangs pointed in the direction of our heroes as something that might motivate them to where they're going to pop up in subsequent stories that we will talk about in next week's episode on the podcast. So just seeing that tease of, of what's happening, it was kind of, I don't know that this was like intentionally the move, but it was in its own kind of cool way and, and and unique enough. So it wasn't just like the same thing on repeat. It did kind of call back to the other and Thanos in the mid credit scene from the first mm-hmm. Avengers movie where the other is telling the Thanos like, you know, they're unruly and cannot be ruled to challenge them is to court death. And that makes Thanos mm-hmm. smirk. And so it did kind of feel like that a, a little bit of here's the the big bad, except the difference is that like Thanos wasn't even playing a part in that Avengers movie until the very end, whereas we just saw an entire movie with Kang. But this is it now. Like this is the this is Kang or Kang's now being pointed in in our direction or the direction of our heroes because of what's transpired uh, in this movie. So, I mean, visually, it's amazing and just super cool to see all those Kang's. But also, it's just that we're in it now uh, with the, mm-hmm. the the multiversal war that's coming <sighs> in the multiverse really saga. Yeah, I, I gotta tell you right now, it's gonna be really hard 
for I cannot wait for next week's episode because I got so much to talk about. So I'm gonna keep it very simple here, okay? And this is very hard for me, people, to make this very clear. Um, first of all, when you told me that, I was like, okay, I'm not sure what what you're you know about. I'm gonna lose my mind at one part. And I remember thinking like, hey, when that when's that gonna happen? And it didn't occur to me until after you know when when after he eats his ice cream cake or Ant Man, and I'm like, oh, I haven't really. I'm like, oh, it must be the post credit scenes. I'm like, okay. And then when we see Immortus show up, I you're right. I yeah. lost Immortus it, was, I, I mean, it's all three of them, but, but it was mainly Immortus. So I was like, oh, there's, oh, there's dude. Paul. Dude, when, and he, like, like okay, and I, this is what I was talking about earlier. I said they put a pin in this, and I want to make this very clear. And this is where I, I think it was perfect for this, because I'm just going to echo this really quick, and I have, a lo- I have a lot to say about the scene for next week's episode. So for all that, I'm just going to say, Get your popcorn ready for next week because we're going to dissect this mother effort like no other next week. Um, and I've got a lot. I've been doing a lot of research. I don't have to do a lot of research. I've already kind of know generally where they're going to go, I think, with this. But um, anyway, um, seeing Immortus, I think he's perfect for this MCU version. I love like the dyed blue skin on his face, almost like I, he's been. I love t- how distinct his voices are. Well, see, I, yeah, see, that's where I was going with this. So, Every one of them, Rama Tut, the Silver Centurion slash High Evolutionary lookalike, um, which I'm sorry, he looks a lot like him. It bothers me a little bit. Um, uh, whatever. But like, I, I don't even care. It's Jarlon the Majors. Um, his voice, I love how it was a different take of the character that I was because I always thought of Immortus as being like this uh, very like very authoritative like king, you know. Or I guess, and you could say King the Conqueror is like that too, but. I looked at it more of like a, you know, the next step up, but I love this idea of this old, old ancient, like Kang, you know, of Supreme, even over he who remains. And I love his voice. Like you said, like the voice was something I was not anticipating and I loved it. And what I wanted to put a pin in was this Jonathan majors is playing all these different characters in the yep. MCU. And they are so distinct. And if this is where we're going, and again, I'm, I'm trying not really hard not to save. I'm saving a lot of this for next week, people. If this is where we're going, Jonathan Majors is going to be a goddamn gigantic movie star after this because his range is, we already seen his range. Like you said, Sean, like Creed 3 comes out next month, whatever, right? All this. If he's playing this many different characters and like, it's like they're all so radically different and they're all awesome. I mean, we're going to be privy to like the MCU. We talk about how, how do you move on to Thanos, right? Like, how do you move on from this great villain? Well, you know, you could say a lot, say what you want about the quality of the films. It's all subjective, but there's definitely been overall, people have been more critical of these phase four and phase five as of right now at this moment, right? The one thing that might single-handedly, and I, I want to be very like, I'm hesitant to even say it like this, but just bear with me for a moment, people. The one thing the MCU that might hang their hat on and might be able to say, like, salvage the idea of, like, they have gone downhill, so to speak, quote-unquote, is maybe casting Jonathan Majors as King, mm-hmm. He Who Remains, or Nathaniel Richards. Because this movie cemented that, and where this could be going, we'll talk about next week, is going to solidify, could single-handedly save this whole phase, whatever you want to call it, because Jonathan majors already has been like, I'm like blown away of what he's giving us in this. So 
this only tells me that people are going to go see these movies and these shows just maybe even for him alone. And that's enough to me, like to like at least get them through the next couple phases because John, the majors, like I thought, I'm like, how are you going to top Thanos? He may just top Thanos. I'm not sure if the, again, I'm going to, yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to leave the Kang and Thanos comparisons for another day. Uh, cause I feel like I'm just going to say it right now. Um, I think he might surpass it. He might not the quality of the movies overall might differ. That's yeah. Something, that's well, a different thing. I, I don't think he has to in that way, by the way, like it's, I think that he just needs to be another great antagonist in the MCU, except he's an entire collection of antagonists. I mean, right, what if the children right. of Thanos were all Thanos? <laughs> like it's just, right, right, right. it's crazy what he is showing us so far and where it can go from here. And, and look, I, I'm not, you all know my policy on comparisons anyway. Like I don't immediately assign a ranking to an MCU movie when I'm first seeing it. And same thing when it comes to all time, great characters and villains. So even when we get to Kang Dynasty and Secret Wars, that won't be the moment where I feel like I'll be ready um, to compare Kang versus Thanos as best MCU villain or whatever the case may be. Um, you know, we'll see how that evolves in time. But frankly, like that's not even the sort of thing that I'm assigning to this yet. It's just where is this character and what is this character doing for the MCU right here and and right now and. I'll put a pin in this for just a moment because I, I want to save my my final thoughts for Jonathan Majors in this movie for my final thoughts on the movie overall. But so just to move yeah. to the post credit scene, we meet uh, Victor Timely in his astounding Emporium of Marvels in uh, what appears to be a scene right out of Loki season two. Oh my god! Uh, with Mobius and Loki, uh, of course. And I like it because Mobius is trying to thought you're saying this guy's supposed to be terrifying. And Loki says he is. And, you know, the scene doesn't show Victor Timely being terrifying. But you know how we know Loki's right? Because of the movie we just freaking saw. And yeah. so um, and, you know, he who remains. So I, I love that. I, I was wondering after they went so big with the mid credit scene, I was like, is there going to be a post credit scene? And if so, what are they going to do with that? And I oh love that. I love, love, love that they kept it with Kang. I was almost worried that they did such a high point with the council of Kangs and the mid credit scene that they would just do. Maybe they were just going to do like, sometimes they do that in the MCU. There's one credit scene that's more meaningful to the future of the MCU. And sometimes you just get the silly one at the very end or something like that. Right. I, I was wondering what we would get. But the fact that they kept it in the Kang space was perfect and even more perfect because they threw it to what has to be the next thing that we're going to see Kang in because I don't think Kang is factoring into Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3. So the next thing presumably would be Loki Season 2, especially if that series premieres before we get to the Marvels, which now isn't coming until November. So I, I love that. And I also... I really love it. I don't know why, but I I, I kind of do know why, but I love it when the movies throw it to the Disney Plus series, and it's something they've been doing since they started releasing movies again. I mean, Black Widow, the post credit scene, uh, throws it to uh, Hawkeye with Florence Pugh as Yelena, right? So we've seen this happen before, but it's just great when it does, because it goes back to, and, and maybe I'm just not tired of it or jaded by it or cynical of it, I still appreciate the fact 
that the Disney Plus series really count in the larger framework of the Marvel Cinematic Universe, no pun intended towards Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., which wasn't part of that framework for the MCU. I just, I, I really appreciate that those Disney Plus series still count. And I, and of course, generally they've been pretty good and at times great, like WandaVision and that first season of Loki. And so I, I just love that that happens. And I love that that's still part of the equation uh, with this and, and the movies handing it right back, handing the baton back to a Disney Plus series to pick up the story and then, you know, send it back into the movies. So I, I really love this back and forth between from the big screen to the small screen in the MCU and that it's all part of it and it's all a meaningful portion of the story. So that I just got a, a big kick out of. And now, yeah, I just I can't freaking wait for Loki season two. Give us a premiere date already, but it's probably still after Secret Invasion, so it's probably still several months off. Listen, I I was not excited for season two of Loki, really. I just wasn't like getting up for it because I'm like, I didn't know who you know who the villain was going to be or whatever. After seeing that one scene, Sean, I cannot wait for Loki season two. <laughs> I'm like, I am on pins and needles. I need to see it right now. And I think it, I'm just going to say this right now too, because I have, I have no idea what they're doing with that to be honest, which, which is kind of exciting. The cool thing with, with this is that with the Disney plus series, and even though we, they are taking a step back and try to, you know, not go so crazy with all these different series, it's nice to acknowledge the series and, and, but it, it's great to lead with obviously a great name and, and, and person we all recognize with, with obviously Loki himself. Right. So that was really cool. And just, again, like that's where King's going to show up next. Like what, I'm just curious where that's going to lead to the next Marvel project. Like, where's, you know, is it going to be King Dynasty or whatever? Which, again, we'll, we got our own speculation on all that stuff later on. But, yeah, man, I, I, I listen, after rewatching the last episode of Loki and then, and then having, thinking about that last end credit scene, get, I cannot wait for Loki season two. I never thought I'd say that, but I cannot wait for Loki season two at all. Yeah, I uh, I can't wait either, but I will anyway because I don't have a choice. You have no they're, choice. They're not yeah. giving it to me, so <laughs> that's fair. I'm like, but if you have it, could you play that? Could you do that one before Secret Invasion? I don't know. It's fine. I'm I'm still stoked for Secret Invasion as well. So yeah, lots of cool stuff still on the way. So before we get out of here, some final thoughts on Ant Man and the Wasp: Quantum Mania. I think as you've heard, for ugh, creeping up on dangerously close to three hours, not that close. We'll be fine, but um. Yeah, I, I think the point's been made as far as hopefully we've done a good job articulating where, and at least hopefully I've done a good job articulating where I'm at with this movie. Obviously, a lot of things I really loved, was really excited about this movie. Some things that I was disappointed by, I, I wouldn't be surprised if maybe some of those things impacted others' experiences or maybe as a whole other set of reasons that other people maybe didn't connect. But I know a lot of people still did. Like, I don't want to make it seem like it's this thing of like everybody hated this movie and it's a failure of the MCU. It's not. There were a lot of people, there are a lot of people who liked this movie and, I, and I've seen plenty of positive chatter about it on social. So like it's it's there, people like this movie. And I, I know it's, there was stuff that, areas where I felt like if, uh, you know, a few simple things here or there could have gone a long way in taking this from, a good movie that I, I really enjoyed to a great movie that I absolutely loved because I, I loved parts of this movie, but maybe I don't love all of the movie. Um, I mean, on some level, it's I, I love it warts and all. But yeah, it, it could have been, there were some missed opportunities there where I, I felt like it, it could have been something even better. 
um, even more special. But there was still everything that I said, everything I praised about the movie still stands as far as my my opinion of this movie and what I enjoyed about it. And overall, I enjoyed it a lot more than I than I didn't. The stuff that I really loved about it um, was able to allow it to, you know, my my overall experience ended up being positive because what was great and enjoyable about the movie overcame the things uh, that I thought were were incomplete and maybe not as great about the movie. And um, as I said, Paul Rudd, still awesome as Scott Lang, a.k.a. Ant-Man. Catherine Newton, I mean, performance-wise as Cassie, I haven't said much about her specifically in this. I thought she was very good in what she was doing. Katie O'Brien as Gentura, like they were really good. There were a lot of good performances in this movie that I, I really did enjoy. But yeah, the standouts for me, Michelle Pfeiffer as Janet Van Dyne, really making it pay off. The fact that they cast her to play this role uh, in the first place really pays off in this movie in a way that it just didn't the last time around. And I'm, I'm very happy about that. But then Jonathan Majors as Kang. I mean, it's tough. Like, I, I think what's different about Kang compared to Thanos is we've been told for longer that Kang was a big deal. I mean, and we know from like being comic book fans, we know certain characters are a big deal and, and whatever. But I think in the MCU, when in terms of how how the MCU has talked about these characters and how, because uh, they weren't talking about Thanos before the Avengers came out. So when we got a, a first glimpse of Thanos, it was just this cool bonus of, hey, Thanos is on the way. And it looks like he'll be the villain in Avengers 2. Oh, how little we knew back in 2012. Sure. But for Kang, like he's really gotten the hype ahead of his first appearance. Um, and this, I'll, I guess, he who remains had an appearance before this. But to have that hype going into it and, and even the marketing, cause that's, that never happened. Like there wasn't marketing for Thanos saying like, this is the big bad. <laughs> like this is the beginning of the new saga. Although the marketing should have, the saga technically began with phase four, whatever. I, I think that the way they hyped this up, like they created expectations for Kang in a way. I don't know that Marvel ever has with a villain in, in one of their movies. And, and I know, I guess you could say they finally got around to that for Thanos with Infinity War. But at that point, we already knew the trajectory we were on and we had known about it for some time. It's a little bit different with Kang where we don't know as much about where we're going, but we do know that it go all roads lead to Kang or Kangs. And to have that sort of hype in front of it and put that sort of expectation in front of it and for Jonathan Majors to step in and just totally nail it is remarkable and it really is something special and i think that's where that's what this movie really had to succeed in i mean you can say that as a, it should have succeeded individually as a movie and i still think for the most part it did but we all know that one of the most important missions of this movie uh, if not the most important mission of this movie was to convince us that that Kang is an antagonist that we should be paying attention to for the next few years in the MCU. And I think that Jonathan Majors has more than effectively commanded our attention for the next few years, thanks to this performance. And really, performance is, when we factor in the other variants of himself that we got in the mid credit scene, I, I think that, because even, even for people who, most people I've seen who didn't necessarily like or love the movie, Almost everyone is coming out of this thing praising Jonathan Majors as Kang and wanting to see more of this character. So that's where, for Marvel, you would like for the movie to have been even more loved uh, across the board. That's the goal. You want people to really like it. 
but at the same time, you know what you what needed to happen was people got to come out of this movie really caring about Kang and being excited about that character. And I do believe that that has happened. And so that really carry allows things to move forward now with confidence in the multiverse saga. And I, I will also say that, look, not everything from this movie landed as well as it should have. But to the point that Paul talked about earlier, they got to take swings and do different things. And I don't think audiences have whatever's turned some people off to this movie, I, I don't think it's just because it's different. I think the audience is willing to accept and, and go along for the ride on different things in the MCU. They've proven that. But at the same time, when you do go out and take these big swings and do some wildly different things, not everybody's going to be on board every single time. And so there will be some things that don't land as well as they should. But I actually don't think, you know, getting one last little dig at this movie I don't actually think that's where the movie fell short in terms of, oh, it was just too wacky. It was just too out there and just too crazy. I think it didn't do as good of a job in some of the areas that Marvel movies, as as different as they may be from one another and as crazy as some of them may be and defying expectations and all of those things, you know, there's an emotional core that we can expect from these movies that wasn't quite as sound in this one as it has been in the very best of the MCU and even the very best of the Ant-Man franchise. So there were opportunities for this movie to be better, but all that said, I still really enjoyed this movie and came away absolutely loving two of the performances, particularly with Jonathan Majors and, um, and Michelle Pfeiffer, but also being really entertained by most of the rest of it. So I, I enjoyed Ant-Man and the Wasp, Quantumania, I have no problem uh, defending the movie from that perspective of I still think this is a solid entry to the MCU. Could have been more but what and could have been better, but what we got uh, was still, I thought, really good. Well said, my friend. Well said. And that is where we will wrap up this edition of MCU Fan Show. So next week on the podcast, we got to dive into the speculation. They sure teased us uh, rather effectively with that mid credit scene. We'll dive into that and more coming out of this movie. There was just no way to adequately and sufficiently cover all of that in the same podcast without making it like another three hours. So we'll pass on that. Save it for another episode. Also, make sure you're checking out Fan Show Plus at patreon.com slash Sean Gerber or on Apple Podcasts. Search for the MCU Fan Show channel or Fan Show Plus. You can find it there and subscribe. That's where I'll talk about the Marvels having that new release date. What does that mean as part of the MCU spacing out projects and maybe not putting out as many things every year as they have been for the past couple of years. Also, while this this podcast has been mostly about our opinions of Ant-Man and the Wasp Quantumania, I will dive into the audience reaction to this film as well as some of the trends for audience reactions of Marvel movies of late and the box office performance of Ant-Man and the Wasp Quantumania and what all that means. That'll be coming up on a very uh, soon-to-be-released future episode of Fan Show Plus. Make sure you also follow us in those places you can. We're at MCU Fan Show on Instagram and Twitter. Don't forget that Apple Podcast review. If you are enjoying the show, it really does make a difference, so we would appreciate a rating and review from you on Apple Podcasts. Paul, where can they find you? You can find me on Twitter at Herman22, uh, two ends, a.k.a. P-Thug. Please, please, please go to my YouTube channel, The Comic Binge, and subscribe there. I've seen a, a number of you guys already do that, and I really, 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 really appreciate it. And 
Uh, we're really close to a thousand, right, eight forty nine right now. Th- this recording, uh, it was just on a, a recent show, um, the uh, the Ve- Vector uh, uh, Multiverse uh, YouTube channel. Sorry, Vector uh, is, is Vectorverse. Vectorverse. Sorry, uh, a lot of Vector Vector in that uh, that title. But uh, his name is Justin. Justin was awesome. He we had an awesome interview yesterday, just hanging out talking about comics. And uh, go check out that show that was on and his channel. His channel is awesome too. And uh, yeah. Appreciate everyone's support. And you can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Mr. Sean Gerber. So for Paul, I'm Sean. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.